Okay, so this is a special episode of The Week in Doubt, and today I have Anonymous Steve of the Skepticule podcast, and uh, as we know of today, the only person, uh, shall I say the United Kingdom as a whole, yes, who's uh, ever been ordered by a judge to uh, have to attend Mass and actually to take your children to uh, Catholic Mass. And um, by trade, you're a, is it a professor of psychology? I used to teach at universities. Now I'm, I'm a doctor of psychology, but um, I work in private areas now. Excellent. And uh, that's fascinating. I don't know how much it ties into the whole uh, freedom of religion, atheist angle, but I've long been fascinated by the whole field of psychology. And uh, so hats off to you for that. And well, if you ever work, oh, if you ahead. ever work it out, Phil, then you let me know. If I work out what psychology? Oh, psychology. Well, <laughs> because I, I haven't got to the bottom of it yet. <laughs> I usually don't ad- admit this to my listeners. I I have touched on it, but I have a history myself of wrestling with anxiety, depression. I've done a uh, talk therapy, cognitive therapy. So uh, hats off to our therapists. I've known a number of them. (laughs) I think it's normal, Phil, for uh, not only for podcasters, but I think it's fairly normal for people who think skeptically and atheistically anyway. I think if you're going to start thinking about some of these things rather than going for easy solutions, Mm -hmm. the, the door is open for depression and anxiety. I think it's normal. Yeah, I mean, I went. I know I went through a number of, uh, to borrow religious terminology, uh, dark nights of the soul, uh, yes. existential episodes, and that's why sometimes I get um, a little offended when sometimes you'll hear Christian. It's kind of a, a an old Christian apologist chestnut that. Uh, Atheists really believe in God. They just don't want to admit it. But deep down, they believe. And it's I the know, most insulting. It's the yeah. most insulting thing that they can say to us, isn't it? It is because my unbelief was very hard won. Uh, there's a time in my life when nothing was more nightmarish than the prospect that there might not be a God or an afterlife. And I was raised Roman Catholic. And, oh, really? Yeah. Um, I'm mostly Italian. There's a good deal of Irish in the family tree, too. Well, both my, um, both my grandfathers were pure Italian, uh, one from northern Italy, one from southern Italy. One grandmother was Irish, a uh, family from County Cork, and the other grandmother, French and English. Uh, but predominantly, kind of culturally, we're Italian-American. So uh, from the cradle, I've been... I was brought up uh, Roman Catholic, all the superstition, all the dogma, um, watch out for everything you do. You never know when you're going to open up a portal for demonic activity. Watch oh, wow. Isn't this funny <laughs> how that, that, that American Catholics are more Catholic than Italian Catholics and more Catholic than Irish Catholics and American Protestants are more Protestant than... Protestants in England and elsewhere in Europe where it started it's it's it, 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 it never strikes me as amazing how extreme some of the views are in America yeah it is true and and uh since the inception of my podcast I've had the pleasure of making friends uh with a number of people across the pond and that's the comment they all make they're just kind of uh I'll borrow your vernacular the gobsmacked 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it is amazing. I mean, you, you and the other podcasters from America have taught me an awful lot about America, and it still never ceases to knock me sideways. How can these people believe this nonsense? Yeah, it is funny, and um, you know, I just did that episode that that you had told me that you enjoyed about the religion of the founding fathers. Yes, that was great, and I tell you. Um, Pain. I thought when I when I I mean I've read Pain before many years ago, but when you recounted some quotes from Pain, it could have been Hitchens. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, Hitchens was actually a big fan, a big admirer of Thomas Paine, and Hitchens was also a biographer of uh, Thomas Jefferson. And both of them are two of the most deistic, or two of the most religiously, uh, two of the most secular or skeptical of the founding fathers. It almost seems as if uh, I, I, this this might sound insulting. I don't mean it to be, but it almost seems as if there's a, 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 a something about America that asks to be attached to some kind of a superior thought. I mean, even the founding fathers are almost deified, aren't they? Absolutely. And uh, you know what's funny is that I've long had an interest in ancient history and world history, but I always found um, kind of uh, modern or, uh, you know, uh, American history to be rather boring, which is an awful thing for an American to say. But I have to tell you, um, now as an adult and now as someone who's really come to embrace their their unbelief. I don't think I've ever been more proud to be an American or more proud to um, inherit the legacy of the Founding Fathers than after I actually read up on their actual beliefs. Sure. And if you're going to have, yeah, if you're going to have um, heroes, to, to put it mildly, deified people, half deified people, it, you couldn't ask for much better, could you? I mean, they are they are great heroes to follow. And uh, it's absolutely unbelievable because the kind of narrative I was raised with, and I mentioned this in that episode, is that I always thought that mom, apple pie, the founding fathers, and Christianity were all neatly wrapped up in this one patriotic uh, bundle. And there's even a famous painting of, I, I believe it might be the signing of the Declaration of Independence that has all the founding fathers gathered around and Jesus in the midst of them. <laughs> and I was yeah. thinking to myself recently, how would that really have been? I can just imagine them looking at Jesus and saying, you do know we're deists, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and here's the, the weird thing is that I'm sitting in a house that's probably about three times as old as your country. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, yeah this is funny. I think that, to me, I was incredibly uplifted to learn just how deistic the Founding Fathers were, how much they really valued the separation of church and state. A lot of uh, right-wing Christians talk about the, the separation of church and state, and I think they take it for granted, and they don't realize just how much a product of the Enlightenment, of the European Enlightenment, the Founding Fathers yes. were. Yes, yes. And how quickly that was abandoned. Uh, yes, it, it's unbelievable. And I thought uh, it might have been over the past couple of days, I forget where I heard it, someone had mentioned something about one of the reasons why 
the American South tends to particularly be so kind of hyper-religious might have something to do with the reaction to the kind of post-Reconstructionism or post-Civil War and having uh, lost the, uh, the Civil War and the fall of the institution of slavery, etc., um, that's kind of perhaps my, neither here nor there, but I figured I'd chuck it out there because I, I, I just heard that over the past couple of days. But of course, we're all familiar with the saying, the Bible Belt, and sure. the American self, the American self is infamously, um, infamously fundamentalist, uh, Christian. Yes. But, but when, 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 um, when you say the Americans flew to the moon, I don't get an image of, people in the southern states i mean it's really unfair of me but i i don't get an image <laughs> or if i do get an image it's it's, it's not a very uh, it's quite a, a uh, uh it's not a very nice you, image like it's a funny you picture image. them in like a, a beat up garbage uh, can with a rocket tied to it or something. <laughs> yeah that's what i picture yeah. you know so i when i think of, when i think of um of flying to the moon i think of I suppose I think New York, Washington, I think of those sorts of places. And that other huge chunk of your country just doesn't crop up in my thinking at all. Yeah, I guess in fairness, I'm sure there was probably a lot of uh, astronauts or people involved in the space program who might have been from there. But I think uh, there is rightly this stereotype of the American South as this kind of backwater where... Um, you know, that's just a breeding pool for ignorance and religious fundamentalism. Of course, there are um, erudite people and non-believers and atheists from the South, too. And they'll be the first to tell you what they have to deal with. Being, oh, no. You know, you, I, now, part. My, my, the way, my access to the South is even more limited than my access to the North. But in the past, of course, my access to America was what I got in the media over here. And it didn't... Well, I suppose a lot of people in Europe, you must cringe at this, but the, the European view of America is, is seen through the lens of what we see through the media, obviously. <laughs> Sheriff um, Springer. But now that my, the main American voice I hear is a podcaster's voice, a sceptical or an atheist podcaster, my whole view of America's changed. And now I listen to uh, Atheists on Air and, and things like that from the South mm -hmm. and Wild Claire on on YouTube. And obviously, it's giving me it, it's it's giving me a whole new idea of of the, the fact that you can't generalize about these places like it's so easy to. And it is funny because I often talk about on on this show how I think you know it's funny because atheism really isn't a creed. Uh, another famous Christian apologist, Chestnut, is that um, atheism is a religion like any other religion. When in fact, it's the absence of belief. And I was recently thinking to myself, you know, kind of comically resorting to humor instead of pulling my hair out when dealing with these kinds of desperation. Yeah. yeah. Comments is that it's not like atheists ever came to my door, like Jehovah witnesses and saying, no. can we tell you about the bad news? Or, that, <laughs> you know, I felt that I needed a lack of meaning in my life. So I went down to the local, uh, atheist hall of worship or non-worship or something. That's right. And, uh, and you get to, you get two non things are not the same. A non-stamp collector could be a psychopathic killer and different non-stamp collector could be a, a nurse. The absence of something is, it has absolutely nothing to say about anything other than that one thing that they share, an absence. It, that's true. And I think another thing I think about is that to believe in a religion 
you really, it, with maybe some exceptions like, say, an adult convert or something like that, you really need indoctrination. Where with me, and I find this is the same with other uh, non believers, is that. I tried to believe, I was taught to believe, like I said, the idea of there not being a God or an afterlife was absolutely nightmare, truly nightmarish when I was young. But my reason um, worked like acid on my faith. Yeah. You know? oh, well, that's the weird thing. So over here, we don't, necessarily have, we don't have to go through that process. Mm-hmm. If I think about the really religious people in my life, at all in my life, I can think of one person that's cropped up and it just happened to be someone someone who lived about six doors away from my house when I grew up. That's how, I can't even remember his name. That's how, that's how few people who are very, very religious have occurred into my, in, in my life. I just can't think of anyone else. I, I, there was a teacher at school, there was one teacher, and of course everyone knew that he was religious because he was the odd one out being religious. And I can't remember his name either. I mean, that... It, that's how unusual it is here to have to, or from, in my experience, to come across people with, you know, a deep faith. Well, and that brings me to, uh, I don't have a, a lot of knowledge about the Church of England, but isn't the Church of England um, fairly or relatively compared to religious uh, churches, at least? Kind of. <laughs> no, you, you put it right there in one go. Most people's opinions about the Church of England is that it's not a religious church. <laughs> right. It's, it's fairly kind of progressive or secular or maybe the uh, right. Well, there's like a no. figurative interpretation, perhaps. Well, obviously, there are people in the Church of England who truly deeply believe. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, it's the default you know, I mean, most people in this country are probably Church of England because that's what it says on a bit of paper. Because if you can't think of anything else to write on a bit of paper when someone's born, you you just tick that box. It just right. it's just the bog standard, nothing to declare box, and that can mean presumably someone with real deep faith. But I think in the vast majority of cases, you know, these are the, well. For example, there's a TV program here called Songs of Praise. It's it's on once a week, uh, and it's you know, in a church with a sermon and singing and stuff, and I don't watch it, obviously. But um, I understand from people who have been to the services that they're packed, packed solid, and the TV cameras are there. <laughs> and the next week, it's back to two men and a dog, you know? <laughs> oh, wow. Now, um, judging, like, it's funny, um, so it's, I've heard uh, a lot of uh, English friends say that America, America has given them some of their favorite atheist podcasters, and I've kind of replied that you know England has given us some of our, our favorite atheists, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. And I've seen Dawkins interview uh, some clergymen from the uh, Church of England, and the. And uh, at least the one, I, the ones I've seen Dawkins interviewed, they do seem to have this kind of thin, malleable, figurative, yeah. wishy washy. Yeah, that's right. No, yeah, exactly. They're, like I say, there are some people who are, are truly devout. I'm sure, but the, the vast majority of people in the Church of England, it is a pretty much a kind of churchy club. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of it's it's you know it's like it's like well, I guess what you in America might call a a um, I think of the phrase for it. I can't think what it is, but it's like a Christmas, a Christmas, a Christmas Christian kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Once a year, go along, right. you know, you know, and they they probably if, they, if asked, they probably say I go to church every week, but they don't actually, you know. 
Not really. And it might provide some kind of, it might act like a social glue rather than actually providing some kind of literal religious uh, foundation or something like that. Yeah, not even, not even really. I mean, well, you have, um, you have social Jews, don't you? You know, people who are, who are, who are cultural Jews rather than religious Jews. Well, it's even weaker than that, I'd say, over here. Wow. And that's saying something, because as I understand it, uh, and, and that's weird, this, there's this whole re- area of uh, religion, uh, there's Jews and Christians, I'm trying to think, there's, uh, if you watch a lot of atheist debates, you might have, uh, atheists versus theists, you might have seen some of the famous atheist debaters go head to head with a, um, a guy named uh, Rabbi David Wolpe. And uh, he seems to not have a literal belief in a personal God. His belief seems to be very figurative. Give me that name again, Phil. Oh, it's um, Rabbi Rabbi David Wolpe, W-O-L-P-E. I think he's debated Hitchens. He's debated uh, Sam Harris. And to listen to him talk is almost like listening to Reza Aslan or Aslan. They have this very figurative um, type of approach to religion where everything is so symbolic that you wonder what the hell are you left with to hang your hat on, really? Yes, it seems to me that most people in in the Church of England, C C of E, as we call it, Mm -hmm. um, most people... my guess is that most people would not believe in a literal hell. Most people would not believe in a literal virgin birth. You know... Those sort of concepts are really alien to our society, I think. They'll say there will be a few freaks that will come out of the woodwork, granted. But apart from them, most people don't believe in hell, don't believe in heaven, don't believe in virgin birth, you know, don't really believe in walking on water. You know, I've met very, very few people in my life who believe that stuff. And that's kind of in keeping, and maybe there is some connection there with the founding fathers, who were, of course, originally from England. And uh, I think... Uh, George Washington had an association with um, both the Unitarian and Episcopal churches, and uh, I guess it was pretty common, and this would probably just make uh, the religious right in America make their jaws hit the floor, that many of the founding fathers, whether they be deists or theistic rationalists, didn't believe in, in things like uh, the triune nature of God, like the Trinity, the virgin birth, things like that. And of course, Jefferson had what's come to be known as the Jefferson Bible, yes. where he literally took a razor to the Bible yep. and hacked away most of the uh, miraculous bits. Yes. So you were just left really with the wise sayings and moral teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and what... And what, what that isn't that the most sane thing you can do and still have that book? Absolutely. It, it's bollocks, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, we can get into some quite airy-fairy debates about <laughs> you know, evidence and nature of evidence, nature of epistemology and that sort of stuff. We can talk about that quite a long time. But, you know, most of it, you don't need to use that sort of language. It's just bollocks. Absolutely. And I think, like I mentioned, my love of uh, kind of like ancient history and, and world history, things like that. And I noticed from a young age, one of the things that kind of, like I said, worked on my faith like acid was 
I was a, a child with a pretty active imagination. I used to like to draw dragons and mythological creatures and stuff. So from an early age, I studied mythology. Uh, mythology led me into an interest in world religion. And I realized how much mythology has in common with the living religions of today and how much uh, the, Jude the uh, Abrahamic faiths borrowed from... Uh, those dead religions we now call mythologies. You know, you look at things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, how it sure. uh, it's a precedent for for the uh, uh, for the uh, flood narrative and things like that. Uh, things like how uh, the twenty fifth of December used to be a Mithraic. Uh, feast day and then it becomes uh, supposedly the birthday of Jesus. You just notice all this stuff and you start to really notice the man-made nature of religion. As an atheist, I feel I've missed out here, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, because I, I don't have this experience. I, 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 I almost feel like I don't belong in the atheist environment because so many atheists, prominent atheists, well, the ones who have podcasts, Mm-hmm. So many of them have had this, this, this experience. And um, there's a philosopher called Nagel who says, um, to, you, you, no, no perfect neuroscientists could ever know what it's like to be a bat. <laughs> right. Now, philosophically, I could have that long, a long debate about that. I, I think it's crap. Mm -hmm. but I don't agree with him. But on this point, though, I don't know what it's like to come to disbelieve things I've believed. And I, I, do, I have missed out on part of that experience. It's, it's something I can't talk about with the same authority that you and other people can. Well, no, it's funny. I think that, to put it simply, um, atheists kind of come in two flavors. You know, there's, there's the atheist who started out as a believer and had to wrestle with the loss of God. And then there's an atheist who the type of atheist who has a secular upbringing. Mm. And it's not that they're rebelling against the religiosity of their youth. They just never had it. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think they're both two valid experiences or oh, two sure. valid paths, you know? Yes, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I have no legitimacy, no legitimacy because of mm -hmm. that position. I'm just saying I, I, I feel like I, I've missed out on the experience and can't speak to it. And when other people mm -hmm. speak to their deconversion story, right. I, just, I just shut up because I've got nothing to add. Or um, maybe you feel like you're lacking some kind of insider knowledge because when, when you're indoctrinated into a religion and then you you know, slowly break away from it, you kind of firsthand up and close know all the little tricks, you know, what it's like to hold that worldview. Yes, yes, right. that's true. This is the epistemological problem, isn't it? I've never been you. I've never been anyone else apart from me. And mm -hmm. the only world I've ever experienced is my own. I do not know what it's like to be a woman. I do not know what it's like to be black. As it happens, I'm not black, so I can say that. <laughs> um, I don't know what it's like to really believe in a, a religion. Um, and, and no one will know what it's like to be Steve. So, you know, it's one of those things, I guess, we put up with in life, isn't it? That we speak to from our own authority and only that. Right. And I think both types of atheism or uh, both type of atheist experiences have their advantages. Like I said, if you were indoctrinated as a child... I think, you know, I could probably help inform someone of what 
a child goes through, what it's like to be indoctrinated, what it's like to have those beliefs, and then reason your way out of them or lose them. And someone who's never been indoctrinated might have a clearer view of just how crazy um, True. That, True. that worldview is. And in a way, I think it's an advantage to have never have been, have your point of view or perspective kind of corrupted or polluted by it. Fair enough, but here's another angle then. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that 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 I I, I mean, like I can say I, I'm not discounting my view as illegitimate. I'm just saying that I lack some experience. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps though, how about this? Perhaps if I had this is the question to what you are as a person. You know, as a person, that you were indoctrinated, yet you got out. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like the God the Godfather trying to get out. <laughs> they call me, <laughs> they pull bring me, me back. back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, in a way, you, you have a validation that I will never have in that you know that you, were able, you had maybe the strength of character or something about you, something in your genes, that enabled you to throw off that false belief. Whereas I suppose we'll never know whether I can. I, mean, I can suspect, but that doesn't matter, does it? All I can say is I don't actually know whether I'm the sort of person that would have been able to escape the indoctrination. Well, you Who know, knows? No, it's really funny, though, is because I think this is actually a great conversation we're having right now because it's almost like I hear a little bit of of envy and I kind of feel the same way towards the other side the other oh, type sure. of atheist because uh, I sometimes wonder what it'd be like to never feel the pull of that superstitious indoctrination of that superstition laden indoctrination and have to try to struggle with it and, and have to you know fight to to, to break away from it and, and really uh, assert your reason and uh, this is perhaps an admission I've never made on the show before and I remember watching one of the Richard Dawkins uh, Dawkins BBC series. Uh, I don't know if it was um, the root of uh, the root of all evil. Maybe it was called, but he did a couple of them. And there's one where he's talking with. Uh, I think she's a, fem- a female psychologist who is now helping people who have left a religion kind of recover from their experience of indoctrination. And even though she's a non-believer and she's a very rational thinker. She's telling Richard Dawkins what it's like to believe in hell and how traumatic that can be for a child. And she's talking about, and her voice is maybe quaking a little, how even talking about it as a woman who is probably looks like she might be in her 50s or 60s, it still gets to her. And even though I'm a non-believer... And even though I have some really concrete, rational reasons why I don't believe, I think there is still a hint of that indoctrinated child in me where sometimes I'll feel a little bit of a fear of hellfire or, oh no, what if it was true and I left it? And then I have to reason with myself and knock it back down and... um, this can I ask you, Camille, can I ask you, is there, is there any, is there, are there any circumstances that you can imagine in which you would regain that faith? I don't think so. Like I said, I, I can feel those mo- moments of weakness where there's that kind of superstitious uh, side of me or maybe vestiges of that indoctrinated child. And as a psychologist, 
uh, you you of course know how powerful uh, those early our early experiences are how how they shape us and stay with us. And um, but yes, but yes, that's true. But 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 also don't don't discount the the power of overthrowing that. I I, I actually stress more in my it's in my work. I stress more adult experiences. I'm I'm not. I don't overstate, in my opinion, some people overstate the effect, the effect of, of being a child on being an adult. You'll never shake off those experiences completely. Right. But I, I, I resist some of this temptation to say, show me the child at five and I'll show you the man. I right. don't think so. It's kind and of I think Freudian th- stuff or whatever. Yeah, well, I'm de- definitely not Freudian. <laughs> uh. But I think the, the power of overthrowing something can be very strong. Um, but, but I was just curious as to whether you had any... You know whether you could imagine any uh, uh, any extreme situation. I'm very interested in my my work's taking me to extreme situations. Mm-hmm. So I've worked with prisoners who will never get out of prison. Um, I've been in a war, um, and I've I've touched upon areas which are quite difficult for people because that that happens to be an area of interest of mine as as to what happens, what gets revealed about the true person in extremists. So that's something which I've I've uh, delved into quite a bit, so I, I was just curious, really, whether whether there was anything that you thought that could. Well, have... I, I'm so glad you you bring this up, and um, it's funny. I don't think there is a circumstance, even in those moments of weakness, where I would go back. And um, of course, one reason is just um, the logical kind of empirical reasons why I don't think the supernatural claims of any religion, including the one I was brought up in, are true. But the the biggest reason why, and it's a matter of principle, is that um, another thing that drives me nuts that you sometimes hear from Christians, and everyone thinks it's the big gotcha, and whenever you watch a debate between atheists and theists, and they allow questions from the audience— this invariably, uh, inevitably comes up. Someone in the audience will smugly ask, "What if you're wrong?" You know, oh, God. And, and and so, uh, and this is why I absolutely detest on moral grounds Pascal's wager. Absolutely, because Pascal's wager says, "Well, just we we don't know for sure, but just in case God is real and hell is real, and we all should that all be stuff, Muslims." Yeah, we <laughs> we we should all believe in whatever religion it is, you know, just in case. Um, kind of hedging our bets, and I think that is morally abhorrent. And yeah, if, God's going to be fooled by that as well. Yeah, exa- well, that's one thing. That's a, a good point too. It's insulting to God if He, She, or It actually existed. But and uh, it's insulting the God on two counts. One, because you're saying you can fool them uh, in that way. And another, it's saying, it's painting God as cosmic bully. What type of God is that that would send you to eternal perdition just because you didn't pay lip service or bow down out of fear? I would hope that any deity worth yeah. worshiping. I'm with Stephen Fry on this. This, this. this God that doesn't exist, if it did, and if it just so happened to be this one that the Christians keep going on about, mm-hmm. if it, Stephen Fry, Fry's got this right. How dare he do what he does? How dare he give childhood cancer and, and stuff like that? And, you know, 
I don't know if you know the expression in, in England. You, uh, it might be American, actually. I wouldn't, buy, I wouldn't want to be a, any, a member of the club that would want that me would, in it. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to bet. I mean, also, isn't it horrible? I, I don't want to spend eternity bowing to God. Uh, that's, that's a, mm. That is hell. Right. Or it's just, I think it's so, what's really abhorrent about it is this weird idea that a being that would be enlightened and all-knowing, and yet they require you to constantly be praising and acknowledging sure. them. Like, How insecure is that? Yeah, like that's some grand kind of uh, self-esteem complex or something. <laughs> Um, yeah, so well, I, you, you answered my question though, Phil, haven't you? Because I think it seems to me that my question to you was, are there any circumstances in which you could return to the faith? And your answer seems to me to be, well, I can't unlearn everything I've learned since. Well, yeah, that's one reason. And also out of, uh, moral principle would be the biggest issue. Um, like I said, just because I basically find Pascal's wager to be offensive and being a non-believer and thinking that there's not any empirical evidence for the supernatural claims of, of any religion, for me to kind of out of some desperate sense for, co for consolation or to hedge my bets to embrace a religion, it would be a kind of Pascal's wager scenario. Sure, I see, I, I see yeah. I, I can't ever imagine myself you know, going through the kind of Christian apology, uh, a Christian apologetic uh, gymnastics that it would sure. take to try to convince myself empirically that there was a, a God. And I actually think Christian, um, the whole field of Christian apologetics, it's so inherently intellectually dishonest. Absolutely. It's a whole discipline where you have people trying to think of ways, twisting themselves into cognitive pretzels to try to think <laughs> of ways to convince themselves that their faith claims might be true. Sure. Well, yeah, you, you've actually given the three of the most offensive apologetics or, or, or questions to atheists. One was, what if you're wrong? Mm -hmm. uh, one was, um, I'm trying to think of the other two now, but you, you've listed... <laughs> Three of them anyway. But the fourth one for me is there are no atheists in foxholes. Oh, and that yeah. one that one gets on me because I've been in a foxhole. Wow. <laughs> and when I got shot at, that I I've got to tell you, it wasn't like I thought about it and thought, no, nah, no, nah. it didn't even cross my mind. I mean, the whole heaven and uh, hell and God and, and it, none, nothing like that, not even atheism occurred to me, you know, in those situations. It just didn't, it wasn't, anywhere near my radar i probably the whole time i was wow. there i don't think i thought of religion and god at all other than my god isn't religion screwing this country up but you know that might have been that maybe but that's about it i just it's probably it's, more it's like uh, adrenaline and survival instinct or something sure. like that sure and i suppose what i don't know because i've not been i've, I've never had it that or, not in my if you're on my memory i'm sure as a child maybe i believed in santa i know i know <laughs> That I believed in Loch Ness monster for a little while because oh, yeah. I just liked the idea. Mm -hmm. um, it's right. not a nice idea, uh, but that's as bad as I could think. That that's my most embarrassing possible, you know, semi-religious experience is believing in Loch Ness monster for too long. <laughs> and, and religious people get upset. They think it's kind of glib or disrespectful when atheists compare 
you know, uh, god to Santa, Santa or the Loch Ness monster. But it really is when you think of it, a, a valid comparison. Because no, it's not. It's not. It's not valid, Phil. It's far more likely to be a Loch Ness monster than it is a god. <laughs> I, I didn't mean, see it going that way, but yeah. it's true. And also, you know, a man could fit down some maybe. Maybe one of my chimneys, it's a very old house, maybe one a right. fat man could squeeze down. All the chimneys, it's pushing in, in it a bit, night. granted. Yeah, all right, granted, that's pushing it a bit. But there was probably a real um, person who, who the story was named after. The, 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 you know, there are records that suggest there was such a person. Yeah, um, Santa's a weird amalgam character. He's partly based on... Uh, Saint Nicholas, I believe, mm. a Turkish bishop. Indeed, there's some story about him, um, like throwing coins through sure. windows or leaving coins inside shoes for um, uh, young uh, maidens or something like that. And, and then uh, who couldn't afford dowries or something like that. And then I think it's also part the Nor- the Nordic Odin. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, we bring American commercialism into it. And Coke you and get, stuff. Uh, um, the night before Christmas and Coca-Cola ads, and you, you end up with the modern uh, right. Santa Claus. Whereas, for Jesus, <laughs> just Jesus, let alone God, but for Jesus as a person, I'm agnostic as to whether such a person actually ever existed. Me too. I, I listen to Price, I listen to uh, Carrier and people like that, and... and mm. Um, it's all, you know, I, 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 as far as I'm concerned, uh, the jury is out. I haven't made my mind up yet. But that's Jesus. I mean, to talk about God, there certainly wasn't any person that, well, that is at all recognisable as, as, as an any personality, I should say, that, that, you know, that can be reflected onto this God chap mm-hmm. uh, or chapess as opposed to... <laughs> Santa, which is you know, which itself is absurd, but and Loch Ness monster. Well, I'm like I say, I don't believe in it, and there's loads of evidence why it can't possibly but exist. But more likely, there might be a plesiosaur that <laughs> swam into yeah, the rock. Yeah, you really, really, really unlikely, <laughs> really unlikely. But if there was, it wouldn't throw all my knowledge of the world out the window. It'd be like finding the coelacanth or something. It would like be, that. It'd be even more. It would be more extreme than that. But even so, it would not change my life. But if a god existed. Well, geez, that'd be that would be everything would be different, wouldn't it? Yeah, and well, that's a funny thing about uh, you brought up like Robert M. Price and Richard uh, Carrier, and I know that a lot of people on the opposing side think that it's really extreme to suggest there might not have been a historical Jesus. And it's not like I question Jesus's historicity out of some sense of, of malice or because I'm mm. a non-believer and I don't want to be true. But And I say this partially in sympathy with Christians, but I think the reason why we can't be as sure about the existence of Jesus as we can, say, Caesar Augustus or Alexander the Great. Is Part of the even, Queens. Yeah, even if he... Even if he um, did exist. He wasn't a worldly conqueror. He didn't leave behind no. buildings, coins, and monuments. Yes. You know, he would have basically had the robe on his back. So, yes, and and know. I was I was I always thought that possibly there was some um, healer of of some kind of hippie who was wandering around the <laughs> desert. Right, um, and then. Thanks to uh, Price, um, mm. I, I now understand that Paul's writings came first before, before the Gospels. 
Yeah, yeah. which which is uh, very interesting, isn't it? Mind blowing. This, this guy just you know had a, some kind of incident on the way to Damascus, uh, <laughs> and as rationalists, we don't think he had an experience that involved a personality, a, a, a godly personality. Oh, Steve, you just brought you just brought up something. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this goes to your question about are there any circumstances that could lead me back to believe? Go for it. And, and I was thinking just um, kind of philosophical ways that, that I might end up, uh, you know, leading myself back to believing or kind of copping out or accepting religion as consolation. But I, I think it would take... Um, I'm listening, Phil. I'm your therapist for the night. Okay. <laughs> it would take like a road uh, road to Damascus type of episode. I would ha- I would need like a full-on apparition or something like that. And, um, and I know I've heard like uh, Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins talk about if they had a kind of road to Damascus episode, they might not – they still might not believe because they'd probably ask themselves – um, maybe I'm just crazy. And, uh, and, and this is, this kind of ties in with you being a psychologist. I don't want to throw any of my family members under the bus or, <laughs> or admit too much, but I was lucky enough just to get depression and anxiety, but there's members of my family who have uh, schizotypical symptoms, who, I see. who've experienced auditory and visual hallucinations. Uh. And I know that people who hallucinate the hallucinations are so strong that it's very hard for the, to convince them even after being treated that they weren't real so if you find yourself asking yourself if you're nuts uh, there's a good chance that you're not nuts you well matt delhunt yeah matt delhunt has quite a, a nice line on this doesn't he? he said the question is what what would convince you and his line is look i don't know but if there was a god he would know what would convince me or I just discovered recently Eddie Tabash, and I think I posted a couple of links on the Weekend Out Facebook page. And I almost posted one directly to you, but I was hoping maybe you'd see it uh, posted. He's a constitutional lawyer and a staunch atheist. I think he's either the head or one of the heads of the Center for Inquiry. And he did a whole lecture, which I posted to the Facebook page, on the separation of church and state. And he ah. talks about uh, the founding fathers and their very strong beliefs about the separation of church and state and about their deistic views. And in debates, when he talks about what would convince him, he has this whole funny kind of skit where he says, if this podium turned to green mist, if my dead father walked in the room and said, why are you debating this Christian? If we suddenly levitated up to the ceiling, then I might believe. And, and that's probably the same with me. It sure. would take something like that. You know what I mean? I would have to ask what was going on, I think. Okay. So, uh, Steve, you were talking about your uh, war experience, your kind of literal experience in a literal foxhole. Uh, what what war uh, specifically uh, do, did you have experience in? Well, um, I was a lecturer at several universities, um, lecturer in psychology, um, and an opportunity came up to go to Yugoslavia during the war, um, and I joined into the humanitarian aid convoys, um, to, to, to which... Which actually did go right to the front line, so I did experience being under fire and stuff like that. And it, it, for me, there was two sides to it. One, 
I used to be a truck driver before I became an academic, so I could actually put some experience to good use. And at the same time, I thought, well, this is the perfect time for sabbatical to, um, to, 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 you know, to experience something extreme myself, to find out how I react to it, and to find out how other people react to it. And so it was really just a bit of a, uh, as well as say, it was a good purpose. I wasn't there just to, for fun. Right. Uh, but uh, it also meant I could experience something which would help me in my work. Really, that's it. I mean, the only real relevance to atheism is that God didn't crop up. Wow. And that reminds me of something... Uh, it might sound weird for an atheist or a non and I maybe I should clarify. Um, I think for like seventy five percent maybe of the podcast, uh, I'm up to like one hundred and thirty something episodes. I used to talk about how I really eschewed labels. I finally kind of settled on the label agnostic atheist. Okay. Which sounds somewhat contradictory. And no, no, not at all. One's knowledge claim and one's a belief claim. Right, which I mean, I think that at least, who knows, maybe science might progress to the point someday where we can definitively explain, like Lawrence Krauss and Stephen Hawking are touching on, how something can come from nothing, and we yes. really can, once and for all, get God out of the equation. You know what I mean? But for <laughs> yeah, now, I'm, I'm, fa- I'm, I'm fairly antagonistic to religion. I see it as a very negative force in our society. Mm-hmm. That being said... I think some of our best universities wouldn't be there. I never got there without the backing of the universe of, of the religion of the churches. Mm. Um, I think the churches have given us a lot of fantastic art, yes, uh, literature, music. not the Bible, yeah. other literature, um, music, not um, Christian rock, but like the music. <laughs> no, of no, Middle and Ages th- and the Baroque period, right. and <laughs> philosophy. Philosophy, a lot, a lot of philosophy comes from religion, absolutely. Um, but now left, it, I kind of feel that we, we. Thanks very much, religion. I appreciate all the backing you gave us back there but it's over now and we don't need you anymore and i'm quite antagonistic. i mean obviously my own experience um you know being required to go to catholic mass is uh hasn't helped with <laughs> with that attitude I, I i used to think that hard atheism was um almost as bigoted as um hard belief um, right. I, I i'm much more inclined now to to be quite antagonistic but you have to accept i i ha- reluctantly have to accept that there's a real real tiny tiny chance Re- i mean i'm talking deism here not theism right but really as you say who started the ball rolling or was the program was there a great programmer who wrote the program that we're sitting in now you know it's it, it, it could there could be some kind of some personality behind it all but i tell you what it isn't it isn't Allah, and it isn't Yahweh, yeah. uh-huh. and it isn't any of these people, because those are so obviously human creations. They're so human that, they, that, that it's bizarre to think a god could be that human. Yeah, and we can see the concepts evolve in religions yes. growing out of other religions, monotheism growing out of polytheism. Yes, and, and that's coming like, out of spirits, yes, that's right. I mean, you could, you could, and also, obviously, if you were just knocking around... Uh, 10,000 years ago, knocking around the woods trying to explain your world so that you could understand it, so that you could help live, help yourself live in it, because that's the reason for it. The reason why you want to understand is to, is to maximise the potential of your genes flowing through the next generation. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do when the thunder, when thunder happens and lightning happens? Obviously, you're going to try and explain it, and obviously you're going to find some kind of personality behind something which is otherwise inexplicable. 
That's right. And, and that's, I mean, like animism makes a kind of weird sense and polytheism makes a kind of weird sense from a, uh, a primitive point of view when people didn't have this uh, accumulated uh, knowledge base about the natural world. Sure. And, and wherever, wherever you start seeing some kind of structure, some kind of breakdown in, in what I might call a communist lifestyle, when you start seeing um, a primitive communist lifestyle, right. um, whenever there's a, an opportunity, it seems... Well, I've, I've used this example before. When some terrible thing happens in the world, like a tsunami or an earthquake... How long does it take for someone to send you an email for a fake donation to try and scam <laughs> right. some money, right? Mm-hmm. It, it seems that we are uniquely talented to find any opening to, or some of us are uniquely talented to find an opening to make a quick quid. And it seems to me that once you start having animism and spirits, then if you were the person who could speak to those spirits, oh, yeah. you get it cosy, don't you? Mm-hmm. And if you look in the Bible, I mean... It does seem to me that a lot of it, the Old Testament, is the story of priests giving themselves power and privilege and, you know, uh, sacrifices. And basically, it's a nice meal ticket, isn't it? Oh, yeah. If you think about books like uh, Leviticus, which is basically a laundry list of... um, Don'ts. Yeah, of do's and don'ts of uh, how you're supposed to act before the high priest and at the uh, entrance to the temple and what people should be. That's where some of the ugliest stuff is to be found. Uh, Books like Leviticus, uh, Numbers, I think even some parts of uh, Exodus, but the stuff about uh, stoning people to death for adultery. Sure. uh, And here's the weird thing. Oh, go ahead. Slight distraction, from, slight distraction from what you're saying, but um, but we were talking earlier about the difference between American religion and a British well, American Christianity and British Christianity, and this is very sweeping, of course. But it seems to me that I don't, I don't, I don't ever remember meeting any Christians who referred to the Old Testament at all. I and mean, we've dumped that man. We it's, <laughs> it's, that's ancient history, literally, right? You know, because over here the Old Testament is just fables, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe there's something you can learn from them as, as illustrators. Um, but, but no, I, when I hear American Christians talk, refer to the Old Testament and building bloody theme parks, God blind. Can't ham, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, that, I, that, that, is, that, that Old Testament thing is so weird. And yet, you, you, even in America, you pick and choose, don't you? You don't mind your mix, oh, mix fabrics. It's so, you know, the, the, I think the term they use in America is cafeteria uh, Catholicism yes. or cafeteria Catholic. <laughs> but I think it applies to Christianity broadly. Sure. And, I, um, I actually wasn't thinking about Catholic. I was thinking more about this, um, the kind of the, the evangelical the Bible Belt bunch. stuff. Yeah. Mm. And it, it is really weird, like you said, um, and there's so many weird contradictions that you really do have to do these weird gymnastics to try to rationalize any of it because the it, taking the stories in the Old Testament literally seems absolutely preposterous. And, of course, it's morally problematic, which is why atheists bring up things like the slaughter of the Amalekites, the Midianites, so. um, 
uh, you know, all the, kill off the older women who have known a man, but the younger sure. girls. But, it's, you but know, don't, don't you think it has the air of something that's been written by hundreds of different people over hundreds of generations for whatever self-serving reason they did at the time? It has that kind of human taint to it, doesn't it? Well, yes. I mean, that goes for the Old and New Testament. The Bible's basically one big anthology and basically, you know, two anthologies, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And some of the things you learn are just wild. Like, one another thing that ate away at my faith, and this is kind of funny, is that I was, even from a young age, I was a documentary junkie, and I used to like to watch uh, things like Mysteries of the Bible and these different shows on history. Sure, me too, yeah. And uh, A&E. And I remember learning at a young age about this thing called the documentary hypothesis. And it's this hypothesis that the Old Testament was written by different authors in different places in different kingdoms, you know, because at one point we had this divide uh, between, you know, we had the kingdom of Judah and, um, you know, we had this kind of, this broken kingdom with different accounts of the same tales going on written by different authors. But it's called the the documentary hypothesis. And it's, and it goes that uh, one author is P, which stands for priest. One is uh, J or Y for Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, one is E for Elohim. And uh, one is D for Deuteronomist. And um, Elohim was a name for God used uh, by one group uh, of ancient uh, Jews. And... Yahweh or Jehovah was a name written by a different group of authors, and and it's funny because Elohim is kind of plural for uh, El. El was a uh, um, uh, patriarchal Canaanite god, kind of a supreme deity in the pantheon. Sure. And mm. Elohim is plural, kind of like the way Seraphim is plural of sure. Seraph, or Cherubim is plural of. Uh, Cherub and Christian apologists will say, "Well, this is probably the royal we," but other oh, yeah. people say this is kind of pointing to there might be some kind of weird polytheistic. Undercurrent. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt. I, don't, I think I think there's no doubt, is there? That I mean, you got to think about that. You know, even the fact that we've got two Eves for starters. Um, the, you know, the, the first Eve was the same name as the as Frasier's brother's wife and i can't think what it was in frazier lilith, lilith. 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 <laughs> that's from the uh, like the apocryphal uh text uh, of the hebrews yeah lilith she was adam's first, first wife. wife and she was kind of like a um an extreme feminist where she didn't want to always be on the bottom during intercourse and she got mad and flew off and god changed her into a kind of uh, infant blood sucking demoness thing that you know attacked children and men in the night, kind of like an ancient succubus kind of. Yeah, yeah. And well, uh, I, 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 as I said to you earlier, we really must keep my ex wife out of this. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, no, it's funny though. I, I did as a kid. I had a crush on Lilith from uh, No, I, I forget no. her real name. I forget. I am your therapist, Phil. Anything you say to me between you and Confidential. me, confidential. Yeah, well, obviously, you have got real problems there, man. Yeah, B.B. Newworth. Yeah, she kind of looked like uh, Lily Munster, kind of, with a bun. 
But uh, was I gonna say? Yeah, but th- there's another thing I learned from watching old, you know, religious documentaries, is that there's also something called doublets, and this is a, fr- a phrase or a term used by real biblical scholars, and it's a term for when there's more than one account of the same. Uh, occurrence in the uh, Old Testament. There's two stories of creation back to back, which get the order in which things were created wrong or they contradict each other. There's two different versions of the Noah story with different numbers about how many animals went on the ark. And I think there's even a weird story in a different part of the Bible that mirrors the story of Lot with the male angels who are threatened with rape and all this weird stuff. And those are called doublets. And and this, once again, goes to your point that these are man-made books written by different authors. And, of course, with the New Testament, you have— Oh, well, the quadlets— (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, three of them are called synoptic, meaning to see alike, and then there's the Gospel of John, which has Jesus dying on a different day. Doesn't so, John have the walking cross, the, sort of the talking walking cross? Oh, I think that's... I don't know if that's a different apocryphal story or not. Is it? Um, okay. Because, but William Lane Craig always talks about that in his debates, and he brings it up because he says, this is what legend or myth looks like. You got the talking cross <laughs> and all this crazy <laughs> stuff. But of course, the canonical gospels are completely rational. You yeah. know? But uh, William Lane Craig is kind of odd in that I think he's one of the few biblical scholars that, consi- that considers the traditional or canonical gospels to be journalistic almost eyewitness accounts where sure. where i think the mainstream view is that the gospel authors weren't going for journalistic um accuracy they wow. were using figurative language to try to speak to what they saw as a greater a higher truth and that's why you see a lot of weird stuff in the new testament that parallels the old testament the slaughter of the exodus i mean the slaughter of the innocents parallels moses in in the exodus story where baby moses uh, escaping from pharaoh and things like that and jesus symbolism is used to compare Jesus to Moses and Elijah and things. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, like the wandering Jews, etc. Um, so it, it's weird, but who knows what the truth is? You have some scholars like Reza Aslan who thinks that things are so figurative, you're left with nothing to hang your hat on. Yeah, it's like what? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, when that's a weird thing, there's a lot of um, otherwise rational Christians that will say, oh, of course... The, the story in the garden is a parable or an mm. allegory, uh, and the the Noah's Ark story probably wasn't real either. But of course, the, resu- the, the resurrection is true. But yeah. that's probably because if you get rid of that one last You've miracle, the linchpin is pulled and, and, and yeah. everything falls. Well, you, see, you, you you said the C word, didn't you? William Lane Craig. So, yeah. question, for you, question for you, Phil. <laughs> okay. Because Craig, Craig's no idiot, right? Is he? he he's no fool. He's I think done he's the... intellectually dishonest. I don't well, know there's the question. he is. I don't there's the question. He's done the circuit several times. He's heard the arguments, and yet he still says the same stuff, even though he knows it's been, it's been I, I would say, in some cases, proven to be contrary to what he says. But the question is, is he, a, is he really a, a bit of a fraud now? 
Okay, now, see, this is where, if I can get your permission, I'd like to play psychologist. I'm going to try to shrink William Lane Craig. And uh, <laughs> you know what I think it is? You think you think you need psychology? Okay, well, go, you well, go well, for perhaps. it. Well, perhaps. Well, this is what, this is ha- what I think my armchair view of it. You, if you notice, William Lane Craig always ends his debates by proselytizing via his own conversion story. He talks about how when he was a young guy, maybe late teens or something like that, he wasn't brought up in a religious home and he found religion and he opened his life up to Christ and his whole life was changed for the better and he invites the same thing to happen for the listener or whatever. And so I think what's going on with William Lane Craig I think he's lying to himself in a way where I think he personally needs to believe. It had such a profound effect on him that I found my way out of my dark night of the soul the hard way. I just dealt with the problem of my own mortality, you know, until I, I became a nerd to it. But he embraced religion. He got religion. That's how he got through his dark night of the soul. So I think he needs to believe, but he wants to convince others and he wants to defend his adopted religion tooth and nail to the end. So he reaches deep into the apologist bag of tricks and he uses every type of cognitive gymnastic trick he can muster up to try to convince you it's real. I think well, if, 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 that's, I mean? if what you say is right, Phil, I would mm-hmm. have said he doesn't do a very good job at it. No. Yeah. <laughs> No, because, I mean, it's kind of a thin veneer. Or although he talks like he thinks it all makes complete sense, it doesn't make complete sense. I think he's bright enough to know better. I think he, and now at the point, where at least some of the things he says, he says it because he's paid to say it. It's his job to say it. I mean, it's it's only a person. I've got no insight here at all. Right. You know, I've got no insight into... I, I, he hadn't got a tell, you know. It's not like poker or something where I can go, ha, ah, gotcha. Right. Um, uh, you know, I can't do neuro-linguistic programming or anything like Only funny tricks. It's just simply, I just think he's heard the answers too many times to keep asking the same questions. Now, that's actually a great point. Um, because if you think about that, if he's going head-to-head with all these atheists all the time, and not only is he hearing these logical counter-arguments all the time, but he must be digesting them to some degree if he has to work to formulate uh, defenses against those arguments. So he's well familiar with the counter-arguments of the opposition, and has that worn his own faith down over time, you wonder. Well, I wonder why he hasn't come up with cap- well, why he hasn't moved the conversation on. Why does he keep retreating to the same arguments rather than saying, rather than saying, okay, I hear what you say about the problem of evil, and here is my answer. And I would say the reason is because he hasn't got one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, and that's funny. That's the one area where you usually well see Christian apologists concede a little bit, but then they'll come up with some BS. Uh, rationalization is the problem of evil and some and this is okay here's another chestnut that i find deeply insulting we live in a fallen world okay now it's like it's god's fallen world he's the one that you know so to 
most likely non-existent people, knowing what we know of genetics, what we know of anthropology and geology. Obviously, the Earth isn't 6,000 years old. Obviously, man evolved, so there weren't two, uh, you know, homo sapiens that were magically plopped down on the Earth or whatever. But this idea that two people ate the wrong kind of fruit, so now we're really all in the shit. Hopefully you don't mind me swearing. Uh, it's, a gro- it's a morally grotesque idea yes. that um, we're all um, kind of steeped in misery because two individuals ate the wrong kind of fruit. Uh, I mean, what does that say about the creator if, if we're to indulge them and hypothetically, for the sake of argument, go with that scenario? Well, it's even simpler, isn't it? Isn't it, it, it it's simply this. God can create a world with free will and where there is no pain and no evil because he has created it. He created heaven. Mm-hmm. So there is no, the conversation's closed until you, until William Lane Craig or anyone else can answer that question. You know, we know God can create free will, places of free will, without pain. Mm-hmm. So why didn't he create this one like that? That's actually a brilliant point. And, um, yeah, because a big part of the, the, the excuse for evil they'll, they'll use is often the free will argument. Um, that it's not God's fault, you know, it's, it's, we're flawed, we make the bad decisions. Well, then, of course, God made us flawed. And, uh, but, and, uh, but it doesn't explain natural disasters. It doesn't explain tsunamis and earthquakes unless um, the right suddenly wants to acknowledge climate change. But of course, there were natural disasters <laughs> long before uh, man made, uh, you know, pollution and things like sure. that. Um, and, and that's funny. That brings up, like, I, I was, I think I was going to say before, but I, I forgot, even though I'm a non believer, I have kind of a romantic, quote unquote, spiritual side uh and i'm a big fan oh yeah yeah, yeah, of, yeah, that's, uh, yeah before you before you say oh, that okay. that's the that's the fifth there's a fifth worst insult because you're an atheist you have no soul you have no feeling you have no love you know you, you don't understand beauty because you're cold calculating evil exactly. atheistic bastard well no <laughs> that's what <laughs> fifth mostly that's what we've now come with five really insulting things to say to an atheist and that's 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 a big one for me i really really have pisses me off that one does me too and, and i'm usually pretty polite say on youtube and things like that and i remember the one time i really got kind of angry was uh and people for the most part have been polite to me but i did one episode where i thought i rather fairly gave a breakdown uh, of my thoughts on the story of eben alexander the uh Harvard neurosurgeon who claimed to have had a near-death experience. Oh, got him. And I thought it was a fairly reasonable and respectful breakdown of it. And I said at the end of the day that we can't take one person's anecdotal experience as concrete proof of an afterlife. But I got uh, inundated with criticism from everything from you know, religious fundamentalists to new agey crystal toting sort of people. Um, And uh, some of the accusations were that I don't get spirituality or this and that. And I went on to explain how, you know, uh, since I've, since I was a young teenager, I've been writing music, poetry, uh, 
song lyrics that I'm someone who every day is moved by nature, someone who's easily moved by uh, art, as Hitchens used to say, art and landscape. I think unless there's something really off about your wiring, all of us have access to this range of experience that people call transcendent or spiritual. The only difference is I would say that those experiences, as rich and valid as they are, are products of the brain. And I'm a person sure. who leans towards that consciousness is an emergent property of the Absolutely. brain. Well, there's no other explanation. I mean, I'm quite happy to hear an alternative explanation. <laughs> I'll, I'll listen to it, but I just, just give me one that isn't just fluffiness. Just, you know, and I think the, the whole idea of, of evolution and, and, and how the brain works or whatever... I think it's beautiful in itself. I don't. I don't need to have fluffiness added to it to make it any more pretty. You know, I think of evolution. It's more fantastic and more amazing than God did it. It is really, and I think if you look at it like an epic saga, you know, if you think about rudimentary life struggling and slowly evolving and becoming more and more complex, all these myriad creatures falling and rising. It really is this kind of beautiful, epic journey. And in comparison, you know, a kind of sky daddy <laughs> going poof and bringing everything into existence, it's almost vulgar or childish sure. in comparison. Sure. It, it's mundane. It's inane. It, 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 it's got it depthless, especially if you make it 6,000 years. It's a very short, stupid story. You know, and that's uh, speaking of intellectual intellectual dishonesty. Uh, I get almost well, actually, a worst feeling of outrage when I listen to Ken Ham speak than William Lane Craig. Because here's this guy. I think Ken Ham at one point actually taught science, which just boggles my mind and makes me wonder what he was saying. Oh, they've all done kids. that. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, what's it? The guy who got banged up and his son's carrying on his mission. Um, Kent Hovind and Eric Hovind. Oh, is that know. the dude who went to uh, prison, I think? Yeah. yeah. He, Beware he, of he, slick talkers. That, that, yeah, he was. Yeah. And his, his son is nowhere near as good. I mean, at least his father was quite amusing in a funny sort of way. Right. His son's bloody awful. But again, a man who claims to have been a science teacher. Unbelievable. And oh, what is, I'm trying to think how Ken Ham gets away with it. I think his excuse is he br breaks science into two categories that mainstream science yes. does acknowledge. Was it it's historical science and observational science? Obs observational science gives you X-ray machines and iPhones. Everything else that came before that is open to debate. And it's yeah, just the war, the, whole, the whole Second World War. I don't know anything. What, did it happen? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> how would how would I know if the Second World War happened? Because, you know, I, I wasn't there. Right, did Napoleon really exist and all this stupid stuff? If you start taking that argument, it's... it's it, honestly, it, it, it's an insult to intelligence. That, that if I wasn't there, there is no evidence. It's just stupid, you know. But it's desperation, Phil. This is where you go to when you've got no, nowhere else to turn. Exactly. And again, here's a man whose meal ticket is tied to his belief. Oh, and what a meal ticket it is. You think about... Um, that uh, Creation Museum he has. And then I recently covered a story on the show about that uh, 
ARC project he's doing, and he was slated to gain millions. 18 million, wasn't it? 18 million? Yeah, and tax rebates or incentives or something from from the government. And even then, he couldn't help himself, and he blew it. Oh, what he did? Yeah, something, it fell through somehow, didn't it? Oh, it, it was because he wanted to have employment practices, which uh, are oh, illegal for the, profit-making organizations. Oh, the right to not hire non-Christians or something like that. Well, he, you had to go to a church that he, not even just Christian, it had to be a church that he recognized as one that was good enough for his employees. Wow. Which, which funny enough, takes you to my situation, doesn't it? You know, when... when uh, yeah, you know, that that someone could dictate what religion, if any, I follow or his workers follow is an insult. Uh, it, it it it's not about how often you have to go. It's not, it's it's just the whole idea that someone else can say, you know, you could have a job if you, you know, if you follow if you go to a church. I approve. That's so. That's just, honestly, it's it makes me sick. Yeah, and that's what. I- um, it's funny because I, I wrote down all these questions concerning your case that I want to ask you. And I was imagining in my head, you know, I always try to be intellectually honest about things and test my own ideas by thinking about what would the opposition Quite say. Right and uh, I was thinking, I'm like, this is such an atrocious and offensive case on face value. The idea of a, a judge not only ordering someone to take their children to church, but telling them what kind of church. And his church. And his his church. church. Yeah, because I I was reading that, yeah, this judge is Catholic, and he happens to have two sons himself, and he was comparing himself and with his sons to you and his sons or something, wasn't he like that? No, I don't recollect anything like that. That bit, I think, might be an add-on. That's Uh, not the line of Yeah, I think that was for the Telegraph. We've got to bear in mind, yes, yeah. Well, obviously, they they might have delved into facts that I'm not aware of. Mm-hmm. I think you've got to bear in mind that my ex-wife didn't ask for this. You know, I, I'm she's she's at no blame whatsoever in this. Um, this. This judge came up with it himself, in line with his belief, um, and actually was a change to the circumstances. My kids never went to church at Christmas. Um, you know, uh, but it, it's it's the intri- it, it's not even like it's a big ordeal. It's not even like, I mean, if my boys wanted to go to synagogue or mosque or whatever, mm-hmm. I, would, I would, you know, recognize that. I, it's not for me to tell them to be atheists. I'm, I'm glad my oldest son says that he doesn't believe in God. It's great. But I'm not going to love him any less if he becomes a Catholic or a Muslim or right. whatever, any kind of belief. He's not going to make any difference. And I'll, I'll back him because he has, in my view, freedom of thought. And if the you know, I'm not interested in what the law says. Morally, what what kind of person would I be when I, if I claim that I should have the freedom to believe what I believe and go to what religious ceremonies I want to go to if I didn't recognise that for my son as well? So, you know, and if I was to go to Catholic church, if my sons wanted to go, let's just say they did, they don't, let's just say they did, and I was to go along with them and, I don't know, play on my phone for now or something. Right. So, so, so what, you know, but that's not the point, is it? it? It's not the amount, it's not the degree of, of imposition it is or how inconvenient it is. It's the whole principle. And this is why the church states episodes was fresh in my mind when we started talking about doing an episode together. You know, it's just this whole idea that someone, that a judge could feel that he had the authority 
to do this. And, of course, we've got a law that says he can't. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I remember feeling a, a kind of additional outrage when I was reading about your case. And I actually noted down what you just said, how your oldest son shows some interest in um, not being a, a believer or having a secular worldview. And to be I fair, felt- Phil, he had, he's got very little interest in it at all. He's very interested in me being on podcasts and stuff. And mm-hmm. he, he, you know, he's very interested in that. But he's not really interested in religion at all. He's not like me. He just doesn't care. He just right. doesn't believe in God. Full stop. End oh, okay. of. So it's like, uh, it's not even like he's decided to carry uh, the mantle of atheism or secular humanism. He's just not. Oh, there's time. There's time for that, Phil. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep. I'll knock on that door when he's a bit older. But at but, the moment, no, he's just not. He just. He doesn't believe, and he doesn't care about it. He doesn't want to go. And as far as I'm concerned, well, actually, to be honest, that's how I felt at his age. It, but I remember feeling. Because uh, I went from feeling offended uh, or outraged for you that there was this judge telling you uh, not only how to raise your kids religiously and what church you you know what kind of church you had to take them to, but now it's moving into him infringing on the rights of your son. Because yes. what if your yes. son doesn't want to be Catholic? Which he doesn't, and this he's is- saying your son has to go to yes, this- Catholic mass. Yes, there's various levels here. For me, it's I don't think I'm annoyed by it, but it's only me. For my son, it's effectively apostasy law because he's not allowed to. He can't become a Muslim, right? He's got to go to Catholic mass. So it's effectively a, a, a weird kind of apostasy law. Only till he's eighteen, I suppose. But it's not the point, is it? That's actually um, a great point. It is like some kind of uh, fundamentalist Muslim apostasy thing. Exactly. Um, and but but. The outra- that, that, that outrages me on my son's behalf. Obviously, it's, he's my son. Obviously, the best thing in the world, you know? There's no one mm-hmm. going to... You know, don't, don't piss with my son because you piss with me. Right. But, um, but more than that, it's not, it's not even that. It's, it's, it's what kind of society do I want to live in? Do I want to live under a society, in, a, in a society under the European Convention of Human Rights, which we are under, which mm-hmm. says you may not interfere with people's faith or lack of it, um, and that we cannot be dictated to what uh, what religious ceremony, if any, we go to, how to how to you know have a religion realised. Um, do I want to live in that kind of society? You know, what what, what did I, I thought I lived in a society that was grown up enough where this sort of thing was impossible? And so it, there's three levels. It's a minor offence to me, okay, because it's me, right? So what? My son, now that's treading on my toes, big style, but also. Like I say, this whole idea of what society do I live in, um, and I want to live in a society which is rational, secular, uh, makes some kind of sense. And it, uh, the outrage goes beyond whether I have a little bit of inconvenience to my lifestyle. I'm outraged because we, are, the judge was not allowed to do this, and he's been allowed to do it, and more so, the appeal court should have put it right. And the reason why it affects all of us now is because they failed to put it right, which makes it a precedent. And now it's a precedent. Anyone can be told to go to any religious ceremony for whatever reason, unless you're going to explain to me why my beliefs or my son's beliefs are less than a Jewish person's or a Muslim, then they are just as affected as I am. And I'm, 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 I'm outraged as a Muslim. I'm outraged as a Jewish man. I'm outraged as a Christian, and I'm outraged as an atheist, because we're all the same here. Mm-hmm. The judge, judge can tell us to go somewhere we don't believe in. 
it, it, I think it is, you know, it's a fundamental human right. I think all of us, uh, you know, part of the tension of belonging to a society is we all realize that there's rules, regulations, mores, but we want to believe that we at least have a certain level of basic autonomy when it comes to choosing what we want to believe, what, you know, how we want to raise our children. And this judge just steamrolled over that. Yes, that's, that's, you're absolutely right. That's, and the fact that the system didn't put it right. That's correct. It's the fact that it's, it's the, and it's the casual way it was done. The way he dropped in this fact about his Catholic faith, that he'd, they, they, you know, it, it was late on a Friday afternoon and he just did it and everyone's back. To, a knee-jerk defended him. The system should have dealt with it. It didn't. A knee-jerk defended it. And it's this rather lazy, slippery slide. It's this very, very British way of screwing things up. <laughs> you know, there, you see, I've been on podcasts and people have, I, I, as I've been talking, I've come to realise people think in terms of America, in terms of religious lobby, a religious judge, part of a, you know, and I don't believe this is the situation. This isn't a religious conspiracy. This is a typical British screw-up. And that's really annoying. (laughs) Right, and it just got kind of lost in the shuffle, the bureaucracy, and no one turned it around like they they should have. Yeah, well, I was banging on their door every time, saying, turn it around, turn it around, turn it around. Um, And finally, just before Christmas, we had the... Um, the, I, I took it to a judicial review um, in the High Court, and I lost that. Um, and I took it to appeal the judicial review, which effectively is, the, as I understand it, the highest um, level I could take it to. Um, and that's why precedent has been set, because we've got, effectively gone through all the levels we can go to that we think of. Um, and, you know, and, and the judge said it's too minor an infringement. Oh, and, please. Well, it is, it is a minor infringement to, my, to what I might be doing on one night every now and again. You know what I mean? I don't, it's, like, it's not about, it's, that's not the point, man. It's not about whether I would rather be playing chess with Phil Arbicelli. It, it, it's, 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 that's not what it's about. It's about whether you may interfere with belief and a way belief is, is realized in a, in a ceremony. Now, um, I don't know if this is even... Uh pertinent or uh, uh if i should mention but is it true the same judge i think there's a a case in derby or something where after 15 <laughs> derby, minutes, yes <laughs> oh derby is that what it is uh, <laughs> i love the uh, it's nothing more the funny English than the american pronounced british yeah so it's british. not like demolition derby it's derby no no <laughs> derby yeah, yeah so uh, but after uh, a 15 minute herring oh, he took dear. what was it three children away yeah a far more serious case than mine, absolutely. I mean, mine pales into insignificance for the, the 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 damage that did to that family. But but even though that's far more serious than what happened to me, that didn't actually breach any human rights. It breached human decency. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm struggling. To, I suppose yes, there is the right to family life. You could argue that there is a, a, a European Convention right that breached. But like. It's not as clear-cut as this. So the judge was in his rights in a way, even though it was a horrible decision, but he's not within his rights to tell you what church to attend, basically. Yeah, I I don't want to try and compare the two. I'd be offensive to the people concerned, and I don't want to offend the people concerned. 
uh, if, if that had happened to me, that would be far more serious than, than what did happen to me. I'm not, I don't want to play a game of, you know, one-upmanship with these other people. Right. I'm, I'm just saying that I could, I only speak to, to the case I, I had, con, I was confronted with. And in the case I was confronted with, it was clear that a human right was breached, one that's recognised by law that we are supposed to follow. Now, uh, has, uh, has this been going on since 2009? No, that, that's a slight error. Uh, 2011 was 2011. when the decision was made. Oh, yes, okay, the separa- okay. Separation began in 2009, but uh, the British legal system is not exactly efficient. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm wondering, so you're talking about... Um, the European conventions that cl- convention that clearly states you it can- is quite simple. Would you like to hear it? Yes, absolutely. That seems like a good idea. In which case, we have the always got an easy solution for that called Google because it's only two sentences. It's very straightforward. Okay. Um, okay. Right. Okay. Only two points here. Point one: Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom, either alone or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in worship, teaching, practice and observance. Point two. And this is the key one. Freedom to manifest one's religion or belief shall be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society in the interest of public safety, for the protection of public order, health or morals, or the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. And I don't see a case. Wow. Yeah, and it even goes into observance and practice, which I Absolutely. think... Yeah. So, now, I'm really illiterate when it comes to uh, European law. Now, do, do these European conventions that... Uh, is it the whole UK fall falls under these uh, conventions? Okay, when, while we've been members of the European community, mm-hmm. uh, we could have turned to the European court to decide matters that we felt weren't uh, settled in British courts uh, properly, as in there was a breach to the convention. Now, what happened about 15 years ago or so is that we absorbed ECHR, the European convention, into our law. Okay. So, effectively, we've, inco- we've imported a constitution. Effectively. So this isn't some peripheral thing. This has been assimilated into the body of your law, basically, right? It's the bottom line. Right. So I, I don't get it. How has this not been uh, overturned? How, how is this still going on? Well, I, I've been in some communication with the Ministry of Justice about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm waiting for an answer to my last question. Uh, what I said to them is effectively... That law has now been changed by precedent. As in America, I think, um, the law is defined by precedent, isn't it? Yes. So you have the a law. Legal precedence, yeah. Yeah, it just sits there until something happens, and then the judges decide what it means by a precedent. Mm-hmm. And so, effectively, the judge in the court I went to, and the, what's the point, the appeals process, has enshrined a kind of power, uh, uh, a bracket after point two which is except a judge may dictate which religious occasions you attend or do not attend. Oh, that's crazy. Because do not attend as well. Because don't forget, I can't go to the alternative. You could bring your your sons to a synagogue or something like that. Well, no, we're busy. We're busy then. We've got to go to Mass. Oh, 
did you so by definition if you have to go to one you you know you can't go to an alternative at the same time oh that, that's right okay now did he did you mention passing that you don't have to go to the christmas mass or whatever any longer or you still have to do that oh oh yes yes so I was going to say, even... Um, it still stands. I still ha- As we are at the moment, I have to go. Under sort of two years in prison, up to two years in prison, I have to, I have to go to Mass with my boys. Yes. That's so insane, because I'm just thinking about, there's even devout Catholics that don't go to uh, Mass on Christmas. You know, I, th- there are some who do. Uh, I know even when I was younger, my family did, but then it, it became more about the presents and hanging out with family than uh, sure. attending Mass. And I- I'm thinking even if you were a devout, believing Catholic family, oh, there would yes. still be such an infringement to tell. Oh, don't get, don't get yeah. me wrong. If you were a Catholic, this would be wrong too. Yeah. If, if I happen... I've never been Catholic. Not, not even according to some scratch on a bit of paper when I was born. No one in my family has ever been Catholic. Um, we've been officially C of E. Um, but um, if I was Catholic, it would still be wrong. Absolutely, because maybe as a Catholic, you want to pick and choose which uh, masses you attend. Like most Catholics, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that is unbelievable. Now, is there any, uh, is this judge trying to cling to maybe like pre-existing local law or something like that to justify uh, what he's doing? Has he made any type of mention of uh, how he interprets the European Convention uh, on this matter? No. Hmm. Now, um, it, it does become funny when, you, when, when uh, you know, it's... It, it's kind of stressful when you're involved in it, but it's also funny in that the, of course, at the end of a, of a case, you have a court order. And I had a court order which stated I had to go to mass. But he never, at the hearing, um, he didn't give any reasons for his decision at all, for any of the decisions in the case. Um, now, obviously, that's fine. You wait maybe a week or two for a judgment to arrive in the post. Well, not, nothing arrived. So I got in touch with the court and they said, yes, it'll be so long. And then I wrote to the court and and this happened several times. And in the end, I had it in writing that it'd be available, and I quote, in days, not weeks. Two months later, at this point, I'm getting a bit pissed off because obviously I couldn't start an appeal until I had a judgment. I can't argue against a vacuum. Exactly. And I had to sue him, the judge, in the high court to force him to give his reasons, um, which when they came, was so bizarre and absurd, I thought they might even be for a different case because they had very little to do with the case I was involved in. But he didn't actually give any reasoning for the churchy stuff at all. No, he didn't refer to it. And he did apologise for being late. He said he'd lost all the expert evidence, which oh. I believe because... The, the system. <laughs> well, it, well, I believe it because his, his memory of what the, the expert said was so bizarre, but I can't go into all that. But um, it, was, it was strange. But he didn't actually give a reason. So I, I still haven't got a reason to argue with. I'm, I'm arguing against a court order, not a judgment. I don't have any reasoning. Wow. And no, the only judgment I've got is the one from the one before Christmas, which was too small an infringement. And that's the only explanation I have. So the most crucial aspect of the decision, and he doesn't even address it in, in the ruling. Or the well, of course, to me, that isn't the most crucial aspect of the decision. I mean, this was, this was a, a case about how my family would be living their lives. So, so this wasn't, uh, and still isn't, the most important thing. Mm-hmm. It's not the most important thing in my life. 
It's not the most important thing in my legal life. It's not the most important thing in my family life. Um, it, but as far as, as far as my human rights uh, and religious feelings are, this is obviously the point which we're talking about and has become general knowledge now. But, but you know, the, the, the case wasn't about church. Mike's wife never asked for it. She didn't bring up... Her, she, no one in the case brought up the religion of the children or how they practice their belief, if any. It just didn't happen that way. Um, so, so that really makes it bizarre. Because oh yeah. you'd see if, like, he had heard... It still wouldn't be an excuse, but if he had heard maybe the children were brought up Catholic, then he interviewed the children, you know? Sure, but, sure. I, I can imagine a case where she was saying he has to be brought up Muslim, and I'm saying he, he has to be brought up... Um, Jewish, and I could see the judge being forced to actually say something about how this child was going to spend some of their days. I could see how a judge could be cornered into having to do something like that. But this wasn't this case. This was a case where the mother never said anything about the future for religion, and the father never said anything about the future for religion. The judge did it completely off his own bat. That is so bizarre. So did he just go on the kind of the fact that if I read the article correctly, that your ex used to be Catholic or or, or was born Catholic or something like that, or I don't think it, I don't think he no I don't think any of that even happened. I think it was simply he told a couple of anecdotes about his Catholic faith. Um, Chris, Christmas came up and he said, "Oh yes, Christmas. Okay, it was sort of like Christmas," um, and. Uh, he said that I had to take... She doesn't have to take to Mass, by the way. She hasn't got to. It's so strange. Um, only I have to. Um, I guess he just took it for granted she would. Uh, but she, as far as I know, she doesn't. Um, we never did in the past. So, you know, like I say, it is rather bizarre. So he may not even have known that she had a history... Uh, I think, no, I think it came up. I think okay. it, I think he knew that she had a history, a Catholic history. I think he had reason to believe that, but that's very different from her asking for something or her lawyer asking for something with a religious aspect to it. It was not requested by either side. Neither of us, frankly, neither of us gave a damn about Catholic mass. Right. It, was, it was not her concern, and it wasn't my concern. And you know, it just didn't. It wasn't on our radar. And something I meant to, uh, I made a note of it that I meant to talk to you about, uh, you know, having some experience with it myself was, I think, you know, there's this bizarre idea among religious people that you hear a lot that religion is necessary for moral instruction, you know. Or, Number six. Yeah, or even, <laughs> exactly. Number six most offensive thing is that religion gives you morals, and a lack of religion can't give you morals. Honestly. Yeah, and sometimes... You despair, don't you? Yeah, we, we probably even know people like, like peers who are kind of lukewarm when it comes to religion and don't even really practice themselves, but they indoctrinate the children into it just because they think they're doing right by the kids because the kids need some moral instruction and I'm thinking, you know, I have two arguments against this. One is you can probably guess, as kind of a scientifically minded uh, non-believer, I believe that morality is at least partly 
evolutionary. Well, I think we're a mixed bag. I think we're wired to be tribal and violent, and we're also wired for empathy and compassion. We're social animals. Internally caring and externally aggressive. I think that's absolutely Uh right. Yeah, absolutely. And and then um, another problem I have with it is uh, there might be some validity to the idea that you can learn some you can you can gain some moral reinforcement from religion, but ironically, for me, born and raised Catholic, uh, forced to undergo Catholic education until probably my mid going into late teens, um, I really didn't get any of my morality from Catholicism. The only religion I got any morality from was when I was kind of in a seeker phase when I was closing the book on the idea of a of a personal God. I studied Eastern religion for a while, and I became influenced by the idea of compassion and reverence for all life that's found in Eastern religions like Buddhism, mm. and that I still carry that with me. But all I can remember of my Catholic upbringing is the indoctrination, the superstition, sure. and the dogma. When sure. I did something bad as a kid, I felt bad probably out of some innate moral sense, and also because I was afraid w- what my parents would think. Sure. You know? <laughs> you got to, well, look, look. The, the, the offences of the, of the father are carried to, to the son. Uh, the tribe that is in the land you want to go into can be massacred and the babies cut out of their wombs. Right. People who are religious, Christians, for example, can be, can be moral, but they're moral despite their religion, not because of it. I think it was in uh, Christopher Hitchens used to say, we don't get our morality from religion. Religion gets its morality from us, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, and I'll add the word sometimes. Sometimes, that's right. (laughs) Well, it probably gets its bad bits from us too, and anything good it's getting from us as well. But isn't that, I mean, the, the... I mean, I, I look at Christianity a lot because it's the, it's the religion that that's most affects me. It's mostly around me. And I guess that's why I turn to it. But the whole premise of Christianity, the one that people want to try and... It's the dirty little secret of Christianity, in, in this country anyway, is the crimes of the father visited upon the son. That's mm-hmm. ultimately what Christianity relies upon. That's the whole, that whole thing about the broken society. The reason why children can die of cancer is that the, one you, the argument you gave me earlier... Because we're in a, we're in a fallen society, right, right. rests upon the principle that the innocent child suffers because of the crimes of the father, just as Jesus got crucified for all of our sins. Bollocks. That's the really bizarre thing, and I'm far from the first person to point this out. But there are some Christians who are sensible enough to think that a lot of the old sto- the Old Testament miracles are simply parables or fables but they still believe in the resurrection but it seems to me that yeah, in, in well, I, most strains of christianity the yeah. point of the re- of the resurrection or the point of the death and resurrection is to redeem the world from the fall in the garden Absolutely. so if you don't believe that the fall in the garden was actually happened what was the death and resurrection all about well, this yeah. is this is what I find hard to, to understand about, if you like, Church of England type wishy-washy Christians, is I can see the attraction of the idea that there was a good guy that knocked around two thousand years ago and had a bit of a hard time. I can I can I can see the attraction of this this guy who who talked of love and turning the other cheek, and we'll try and forget about the I'll bring a you know 
sell your sword <laughs> sell your sell your clothes and give and bring a sword and that's sort of, yeah. even if we clean him up totally clean him up which they do anyway and they clean out all the stuff we don't like all the bits that that are are, 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 are look Samaritans are such disgusting people that I'll point this one out because he wasn't yeah that's um, true the good Samaritan <laughs> you know even if we really really tidy up Christianity and make it really nice and moral you know you have to say well what's the point because the whole point of it is redemption, redemption through sacrifice. Re- sacrifice not of the person who committed the crime. The vicarious redemption, as uh, Higgins yeah. used to call it. Absolutely. I mean, it's an, it's, it, it, you can't get much closer to an evil philosophy than that, can you? It's very, yeah, so you don't have to take account for your own wrongdoings. The, this one guy's going to redeem your sins for you, he's basically a- acting as a stand-in for an Old Testament scapegoat. Where, where the, absolutely, you know, and, absolutely. but then we're still dirty, fallen, and sinful. Yeah. Despite all that, so something didn't stick. Absolutely, you can't get much more more guilty than the Catholic, do you? That's absolutely. I'm, even though I'm a non-believer, I'm, as I alluded to earlier, I'm still carrying some of that baggage around. I'm from London. I spent most of my life in the north of England. And you'd say you can't get the Cockney out of the Londoner. We can't get the. You'd find it's hard to get the guilt out of the Catholic, to be honest, isn't it? Absol- oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's still something uh, I, I wrestle with to uh, some degree. It's fine. I remember th- there probably was a time when I was a teenager that I resented God for not existing, as paradoxical as that sounds. And now, uh, even though I don't literally believe in any of the supernatural claims of Catholicism, I'm still carrying around some Catholic guilt. The the whole thing is very bizarre, but obviously from a psychological standpoint, it makes perfect sense if you indoctrinate a child at a young age. And it seems to affect women more than men. That that could be. I was mentioning that woman that Dawkins was talking to who now helps other people recovering from religious upbringings and how she still carries around a lot of the baggage about the, the doctrine of hell and all that. And, and I think the, the key here is it seems to me that if, if you take my premise that um, once you have some spirit deities type stuff, then you'll get some dodgy people will try and take advantage of that and mm-hmm. create a power base for themselves. There's nothing easier and better to cripple the rest of the population with than sex. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, Catholicism is great on uh, when it comes to sexual guilt. They, they, <laughs> yeah. they have the patent on it. But, it's, but when you talk about power, you know, in the name of religion, um, I mean, Catholicism, and I'm not just saying this to try to, you know, be a grinchy atheist and slam on Catholicism, but I think... A lot of honest-minded Catholics, you know, probably asked themselves this at one point. If Jesus taught about, you know, social justice, about the difficulty of a... It's more difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of the needle. About, and then we've got to talk about the history of gates and stuff. You know, and it's like... Um, why does the Pope, why does the Church need all these... Uh, gilded treasures why do they need these palaces and 
uh, all this finery and all this wealth. And, and it, it, yeah, it, it's know, not even that it looks good anymore, does it? I mean, maybe 50 years ago, maybe it looked okay, but now it's just gaudy and horrible, isn't it? Gaudy. And if you go back, I mean, you know, some centuries ago when we had the Borgias and the Medicis mm. and you had popes uh, living with their illegitimate children uh, in tow or whatever. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, obviously paid indulgences and the list goes on. Uh, yeah, I think, unfortunately, I hate to say it as someone who maybe, even though I'm an atheist, still likes some of the trappings of Catholicism. It's hard to argue against just how incongruous the papacy is with this humble idea of what Christianity is supposed to be at heart. But the hypocrisy is, is yeah. appalling, isn't it? I, 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 and it's weird because I speak uh, sitting as I am inside a, a building built by Catholics for Catholics. This is a very old religious building I live in. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and there was no Protestantism. When this was built, there was no Protestantism. There was no America. So that's old. <laughs> that is old, Yeah. Yeah, and and it's rather weird. Uh, it, it's one of those places that that I could. It, it's it's very. It's it's probably just what you imagine. It's all stone and dark, and I'm lonely on the moors in the middle of nowhere, and the wind <laughs> howls, and it it'd be a great setting for a film. And I've never ever. I mean, I'll you know if if the pig escapes, I have to go out in the dark, and the torch isn't working, and you know, and you know, it, you could imagine a scenario where that would be creepy. But I've never ever got the creeps because I think I'm fairly immune to it now. It's you know, it's all crap, isn't it? I mean, there is well, just me, the cat, and the pig. Well, that's fine, and I think that's evolutionary too. There's probably some evolutionary advantage or reason why we're afraid of things that go bump in the night because you don't want to be eaten or killed by uh, know, real good. predators yeah. or whatever. Uh, but it, it is funny because another, you know, I try to be honest with myself about my own kind of contradictions or times in my life when superstition will kind of rear its head despite my reason-based outlook. And I remember when I was a little kid, probably like um, not even not even 13 yet, or maybe in between like 8 and 12 or something, my whole family was sitting around and The Exorcist was on TV. And I remember my father... <laughs> How many children have been messed up by that film? Exactly. And my father, who can usually be this kind of gruff character, once in a while he'd be kind of mischievous and he'd get this kind of, you know, naughty grin on his face. And I right. remember him looking at me with that grin as I was staring at the TV. Oh, but you feel? Probably in between 8 and 12 or something Ooh. like that. And I'm staring at, like, you know, full-on possession scenes with the rotating yeah. head and the crucifix and everything. And so afraid that I couldn't even speak or get off the couch or cover <laughs> my eyes. And my father looking at me with that, like, mischievous grin. Was he a proper and, Catholic? Um yeah, yeah. My, I actually, I to this day, my day job. Even though I have a, de I've always been artistic, so I, I have a degree in graphic design, and this is probably where I really do need a therapist. But for some reason, <laughs> I'm doing manual labor with my family. Um, my both my parents come from kind of humble, working class origins, and my father built up his own construction business and to this day my my day job is swinging a hammer with the family business and um 
And uh, yeah, both my parents, uh, kind of like old old world style Catholics, they've become more progressive politically with age. Uh, they probably have kind of. Uh, left-leaning democratic political outlooks and have become progressively more secular with age. But I had a really kind of old-school Catholic upbringing um, where you would, if you brought a heavy metal album into the house, you know, my parents would, my father would look at the lyrics and try to see it. But this is the weird thing, you're talking a foreign language because I don't imagine a hardcore Catholic here doing that. Yeah, because this this is really old school stuff. I mean, warning us against you. I had a Sunday school teacher. This is before I was uh, before I was a teenager. Uh, we call it elementary school here. Sure, it's, it's basically kindergarten to yeah. uh, year five, to uh, grade five. And uh, so I was probably in that age range. And I had a Sunday school teacher. She seemed old to me, but in retrospect, she's probably like in her 20s and rather comely looking or whatever. Uh, yeah. But she was recounting a story about her and some friends using a Ouija board. Yeah. And the Ouija board became demonically possessed, flew around the room and knocked over a Christmas tree. Yeah, and that wasn't true, was it? No, no. And I'm planning on writing a book. <laughs> I'm planning on writing a book. And I'm incorporating that story into the beginning. And um, but I remember it stuck with me, and part of me, my B, my little BS, my budding BS detector went off. And looking back, I'm kind of PO'd at that lady for doing that to small children. And, and yet she might have made you an atheist. In part, perhaps. And there, I had another anecdote from around the same time when it was like a kindergarten or a first grade teacher. They were trying to be nice in their own bizarre way. And uh, there's a lot of uh, people of Irish descent in New England or in America in general. And like I said, my maternal grandmother was Irish, even though I'm largely Italian. So St. Patrick's Day is a a fairly big deal. And... um, they the the two female teachers told us we were going to get a visit for St. Patty's Day from a real life leprechaun, but of course the <laughs> leprechaun really wasn't going going to come. So they gave us like green tilt tinted milk and some like bland cookies to munch on. The leprechaun, of course, never came, and they ended up blaming it on us, saying that we hadn't been good oh. enough. So it started off. Oh, it was supposed to that's be that's awful, isn't it awful? And so that was another that's thing. Pathetic where, as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not as if you couldn't see it coming, is it? No, my little BS detector went off then too, but I still, in retrospect, resent that. You know what I mean? Well, that's really bad though, because it's not only that they tried. I mean, they didn't. They didn't really believe a leprechaun was going to turn up. I mean, it's not like you know all this. And again, it's a very American thing. This um, uh, what do you call it when you'll get whisked away? Um, the rapture. The uh, yeah, yeah, the rapture. <laughs> it's American. We don't have that over here. We just don't right. have that. Which um, really isn't but, all that Christian traditionally. I think it borrows yeah. from one fleeting passage in, Reve- in, 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 I don't know if it's Revelation or one part of uh, the uh, New Testament, a very fleeting right. part, and they turned it into this but, whole doctrine. Sure. But but if, if, if someone said the rapture's coming next Thursday, like that fella did, um, and, and you promised your kids it and it didn't happen, then I can understand how you could... You, you know, you, you might have to come up with some excuses, but it's not like they really believed the leprechaun was going to come. How did they get themselves into that corner? Like, I almost think they were 
in a misguided way, they were trying to create like a fun or playful event for the kids, but then they realized you have to say nothing because obviously there's not going to be a leprechaun. You know what I mean? And so they went the, the what they the explanation they went with was we were bad kids. We, we yeah. did something wrong. Brilliant. Where they could have said, "Oh, he got." caught up at the at the last school he was visiting or something but sure. of course they should have been bringing it up at all so, uh, just so so stupid yeah they, so a couple of those things because i've probably got got like 70 pages of a book done and i include those two anecdotes at the beginning what's the line <laughs> you're taking what's the line you're taking phil in the book what's, what's your angle is it a personal experience or yeah, I think it's it's kind of s- supposed to be a combination of autobiography interspersed with my own philosophy and uh, and reasons why I don't believe. Yeah, my um, journey. Yeah, yeah, and I, I the title might the working title might be kind of pompous. I might end up changing it, but it's basically I was going to call it. Now it just slipped. It, it was supposed. It was going to be uh, beyond religion. Truth without no the the search for truth through reason or something like that. No, that sounds all right. I, I think <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this title's ever come up anywhere, but I quite like the idea of it. For it's, it's got to be. It's no good for me. It's got to be for, for, from a converted religious person, and it's from eternity from eternity to here. Oh, that is pretty good. This is all we like have. That. This is the world we have. <laughs> yeah, after having eternity to start with. I mean, I mean, like I say, it's no good to me because I, 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 I never remember having eternity. But right. it sounds quite. I think it's quite a good title. If anyone wants to nick it off me, they can have it. You know, that's nice. As long as I get a free copy. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, everyone's got a book. Everyone should write a book. Absolutely. I had uh, one person who wrote a book. Uh, I think it was entitled "Atheism Is Winning," and he approached me on Twitter. Um, I, I didn't know him from Adam, no pun intended, and uh, he asked if I would give his book a review or a shout-out on my show, and so you know, I was kind of busy, so I, I read the introduction, I looked the, you know, the PDF over that he gave me and got a sense of it, and I basically said it looked like this person was coming from a positive place, and... You know, it's it's a book about advancing an atheism worldview, but it's it's couched in a kind of warm, friendly kind of way. And it's, it's, apparently, he didn't like the way I promoted the book, and he thought that we should talk again before I promote it any further. Then he went on to give me a bunch of pointers about how I should change my show, and I was like, you know what? <sighs> we can forget this. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I'm glad yeah. you, I've got a few ideas. Hey, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but I was like. Come on, we, we, we need, I mean, I, I, I think there's a, there's a great range of shows. I, like, I love the preaching to the converted shows, like Cognitive Dissonance, mm-hmm. ones that don't care about converting anybody. They know they're not going to convert anyone. They'd want to have fun between us, which is great. I love Thank God I'm Atheist, because that's kind of bouncy and cheerful and doesn't, it makes me laugh, but doesn't make me angry. And for yourself, I've, I've, I've learned a lot. They, they've been very, yours are like the documentaries. You know, I get from you nice package of facts which I might not other I might have to sift through other things to get to such as like I said I learned a lot about um, about the church state separation and, and, and what the founding fathers not that we should I, I'm, I'm still confused why we should care what the founding fathers thought but 
Let's just say that we well, do. Well, that goes back to what you said <laughs> earlier. And this is this is one of those things you're not supposed to say. This is one of those sacred cows you're not supposed to mess with. The founding fathers are almost literally deified. Yes, so and, you have, a, and, and you have radical, almost and you have a radical, almost treasonous. And you've got a doctrine. You've got a doctrine, which is the Constitution. And right. you've even got a... Uh, a creation, uh, a creation story. Um, you know, the the boats came over, and the pilgrims came over, <laughs> yeah. and the the locals are very happy to see them. Brought them some turkeys, and didn't at all get smallpox. And you know, and you know, and the founding father. It's a nice little story, which because again, I miss out on this. We haven't got a creation myth like that. We haven't got the founding fathers of our country. It's more of a complicated very long mishmash accent influence and the romans come over yeah exactly well i mean <laughs> I, I i'm guessing that pretty much all the kids in america roughly get the same story yeah and it's funny that it, it takes kind of digging around on your own to get the truth about the founding fathers and how deistic and secular uh they actually are and i think it's kind of funny because yeah, I'd like to consider myself kind of politically independent, but I uh, admittedly leaned have lean heavily left on a lot of social issues, like whether it's legalizing marijuana, uh, gay rights, uh, LGBT rights, uh, things like that, separation of church and state. But it's funny because the people who wrap themselves in the flag, and the Christians, uh, the right, the Christian right are the ones who try to lay claim to the founding fathers. And ironically, it turns out that as, as far as their outlook on the world, uh, this, the founding fathers probably have more in common with my worldview than, than the worldview of, of a uh, fundamentalist Christian or even a run-of-the-mill Christian. Sure, sure. Well, I, I actually really enjoyed that episode. But the trouble is, I mean, coming from the outside, I had the, the basic, the very basic facts, and I... And I I, I was uh, that was very helpful to me to understand what the founding fathers, in their own words, as you put it, said. Mm -hmm. not, not that it really matters, but see, if we are going to have a religion, it's not a bad one to have. Yeah, founding, that's true. Founding fathersism, I mean, you know, that's that's okay. You know, as they go, as long as people realize that it should be a, a secular religion of sorts, and just how secular those uh, founders they're deifying were. Um, sure. And I think uh, it's funny because I heard Eddie uh, Tabash, that uh, that athe atheist constitutional lawyer I was talking about, he actually, and I hadn't watched these videos before making that episode, I watched them afterwards, but he had, he had recited same of the, some of those same Founding Fathers quotes that I did, and one of them that is just so brilliant, the uh, Thomas Jefferson one that says something, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something about in the future, um, the genesis of Jesus in the womb of a virgin by a supernatural father will seem as much a fable as the genesis of Minerva in the head of Jupiter. Yes. And that's basically... You know, you have the parallels between the Greek and Roman myths, and that's basically Athena busting fully formed from the head of Zeus. Sure. Uh, and so, and if if the average Christian is capable of grasping what that quote means, you know, uh, it's sure. Jefferson saying it's mythology. You know, I think I mean? there's um, I think there's a fairly well known trope. What would Jesus say if he came back now? But imagine what would the founding fathers say if they came back now? Would they be gutted? 
Probably. Gutted means the same to you as me. Devastated, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, disappointed. No. Right. Uh, I I wonder, you know, what they would think. I've thought about that, too, especially after doing that episode. And I'm trying... Thomas Jefferson, I mean, yeah, Jefferson or uh, Payne, especially, but even some of the the more the ones who were more um, sympathetic with religion, like Franklin or John Adams. I'm trying to imagine the look on their face if they saw Ken Ham's Creation Museum, <laughs> you yeah. know, or saw a poster yeah. for. And I imagine one of them turning around and saying, "I didn't mean machine guns." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's another kind of sacred cow that you're not supposed to touch. If you say anything critical of the right to bear arms, you're a hippie, you're treasonous, you're soft. Uh, it's ac- it's absolutely ridiculous. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but I think because we're talking about religion versus atheism, we're, now we're talking about guns. I don't know if you guys heard it uh, over on your side of the pod, but there was this really kind of shocking episode that happened this past week where this guy killed three young Muslims. In I've heard about it, yes. I've, I don't know much detail, but I've, I've heard of it. Yeah, it was in, um, I forget what part of the country it's in, but but the, the location is known as Chapel Hill, and it's kind of this college area, and there was three young Muslims uh there was a dental student and his wife. They were newlyweds. And then the wife's sister. And by all accounts, they were these great young people. They are probably in their very early 20s. And these are people who were giving time to charities and offering dental services to the homeless and things like that. And... There was this guy with a chip on his shoulder who lived near them, and now people are trying to suss out if it was a hate crime or if it's really what seemed on face value that the guy had a chip on his shoulder towards his neighbors in general, and he would argue about park over parking spaces, and if the neighbors were too loud or if you parked in the wrong spot of the complex, he would come to your door displaying a gun on his belt and kind of lay into you. And um, supposedly there was some kind of just ongoing dispute over a, a parking spot. And anyway, he ended up shooting last week these three young Muslims in the head. And then he turned himself into the police. And so everyone off the bat is thinking, this is probably some right-wing gun nut. You know, that's what everyone thought. And it turned out, and I'm like, oh, no. I'm like clutching. He wasn't an atheist, was he? He was an atheist. Yeah, he was an atheist. And not only an atheist, but he had progressive views about gay rights and stuff. But it doesn't matter, of course. Yeah, of course. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. But the, the only thing that bothered me about it is that, Obviously, you know, this is going to be like throwing red meat to the opposition. And even though it logically doesn't make any sense because atheism isn't a, a belief, it's a right. lack of belief. You, you understand I mean? that if it was here, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't have been even mentioned. Yeah. And it's, and, I, and even like a liberal news source like the Huffington Post and, and the headline, it said Chapel Hill shooter. Uh, shared atheist beliefs. Uh, Here it would not even be mentioned because it's so irrelevant. 
I, just, I do not. I don't believe anyone would mention it. Even even the Daily Mail or whatever you're thinking of, it wouldn't occur to us. It would just be the fact that three people were murdered. Really. Yeah, That's- it's off our radar. We would talk about Islam. We would talk about how this guy had a gun. We would talk about all sorts of things, but we wouldn't. We, I don't think it occurred to us to even refer to his belief because it's normal, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it's um, and there's kind of a, a kind of a meme that. Uh, People on the left like to throw around, like, whenever someone with a gun kills someone now, uh, it's a play on, I think it's Wayne LaPierre, the head of the National Rifle Association, he would say that what every situation needs is not a lack of guns, it needs a good guy with a gun. So, whenever there's a bad guy with a gun, the only thing you need to solve the problem is a good guy with a gun. So, whenever someone gets killed now people on the left will say where was the the good guy with the gun or they'll say oh just another good guy with a gun and of course now people on the right are saying just another lefty with a gun or something like that so it's already turned into fuel for a pissing match about i was quite pleased when when that um that christian thing statue whatever it was got hit by a car i was quite pleased that turned out to be a christian that did it a Christian, st- I don't, I don't even think I'm familiar with that. A Christian, there was some Christian monument that had been a, the topic of some argument. Uh, you know, the, the normal sort of argument: should we have a Christian thing? I think it might have been, may have been the Ten Commandments. You know, yes, normal sort of argument: should we have the Ten Commandments um, outside this courtroom or whatever? And someone crashed their car into it and smashed it up. Oh, but well, it turned out to be a crazy Christian. Yeah, I'm not even familiar with that, but I know there is a really long-standing controversy over whether the Ten Commandments should be displayed outside courthouses, and uh, and of course it shouldn't, because yeah, it's obviously a clash of uh, church and state. Uh, and it's yeah. stupid because the whole idea—I mean, the the idea that God God wrote the Constitution—stupid. The yeah. idea that your laws re- represent the codification of the of the Ten Commandments. Stupid. I mean, it's hard to find anything more ridiculous than to try and force American law onto the Ten Commandments. It's ridiculous. Most of them are completely irrelevant. I was just going to say that, as a lot of people have pointed out, uh, the first few are really just uh, about ego trembling before god and paying lip service <laughs> yeah the uh the more universally moralistic ones come later on you know thou shall not steal etc <laughs> well don't don't give false evidence don't <laughs> steal don't kill isn't that about it well you're reminding me of a, a fight i got in with my father which i also mentioned in the book i'm working on uh I'm a huge fan, have been since probably maybe uh, my early teen years or even a little more, a little before that, of uh, The Doors, the rock band The Doors. Sure, Jim Morrison as an individual, by studying Jim Morrison, it's how I found out, it's how I discovered a lot of my literary interests, like Blake. And Light Your Fire. Huxley, yeah. yeah, Like, uh, he was actually, literally had a genius IQ and he was very well read. I found out about poets like Baudelaire and Rimbaud and, and uh, Blake. I found out about like philosophers like sure. Nietzsche. And, uh, These are the sort of people that shouldn't take drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so 
um, my father, when I was, I, I was in a band, actually, I, I think I'm still in a band, we just don't play anymore, but from an early <laughs> age, I was in a band, and I was probably like in my late teens or something like that. This is an atheist thing, this is an atheist podcaster thing, because I used to be in bands, I played oh, at festivals really? and stuff, yeah, but it's, but not only you and me, it's, it, it, there's a whole lot of podcasters, I mean, um, Jake from the Imaginary Friends show uh, produces music on his podcast all the time, um, there's also, it's, um, the the scathing atheist. All his music is written by himself. It seems to me to be a uh, that maybe it's about whether you're maybe it's about if you're going to be into podcasting. Maybe for the outgoing podcasting type person, you're also the sort of person that would have picked an instrument up and played live. Maybe just that's it. I think there's a, there is probably a connection there between musical creativity and podcasting and recording. But also, maybe, yeah. it goes to the point earlier that we were talking about one of those in, insulting misconceptions about atheists that we're not spiritual or creative people or something like that. There's a lot of creative, uh, a lot of creative uh, atheists out there but it's funny because how creative is it is it to absorb what you've been taught and regurgitate it out how creative is that to nod your head and toe the line yeah yeah and uh it's funny so my band had been playing too loud and after they left my father came upstairs and he saw that i had a picture of jim morrison on like a bookcase and that there were two candles that had been burning there. The, the, <laughs> the candles were out. But in retrospect, I totally get my father's uh, hang-up about candles. He's a, a carpenter, yeah. and he had seen houses that had been partially destroyed by oh, candles. Oh, it was purely practical then. Yeah, but this is what he said. He looked at the picture of Jim Morrison, and he said, what are you worshipping, Jimmy Dores? <laughs> That's what he said to me. And I still laugh because there's a comedian uh, named Jimmy Dore. So whenever sure. I hear the name Jimmy Dore, I think of it. But As I, I say, thought, which, one of the, which, one of, which one of them is Pink? Wait, oh, Pink Flo- are you a Pink Floyd fan? Yeah, absolutely. We're, yeah. We're, but which by one is the pink? way, which one's pink? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so uh, I love Pink Floyd too, huge uh, Floyd fan. And uh, so I got into a fight with my – not a not fisticuffs, but I got into a verbal altercation with my father, yes, about um, the Ten Commandments. Because when my father asked me if I was worshipping, quote-unquote, Jimmy Dores, I I kind of angrily, you know, in my angst-ridden young person way, said I don't worship anything. And he tried to say that the Ten Commandments were proof that there must be a God, because how could something so ingenious come about otherwise? And even at that young age, I went into how the Ten Commandments were basically a social contract, a kind of, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, like a set of rules to help keep people from killing each other. You know, I mean, the kind of, and we have precedents like the Code of Hammurabi, etc. Yeah. yeah. I was a little wise ass, and I was always naturally philosophical. So, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and all the references in the Ten Commandments to child abuse, to rape, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Oh, hang on a minute, it's not there, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But the the, uh, the old test don't own slaves. Mm, that could be a good one. Yeah, and oh, I love when Christian apologists say, "Well, it was a different kind of slavery." Ah. Yeah, <laughs> if you read it carefully, the and, and then it kind of contradicts itself. You're not supposed to take uh, Hebrews as slaves, but if you do have he- fellow Hebrews as <laughs> but slaves, if you did by accident, yeah, <laughs> yeah, then it's like 
you can let them go after six years, but if they love slavery so much, you have to puncture their <laughs> ear with no, a They call. love their family so much. Yeah, exactly. And if their wife uh, wasn't a slave beforehand, she gets to go free too. But if she was a slave, the master gets to keep her for a while. And all, I mean, it's just atrocious. It's broad age, it's the thing bronze is, age if, morality. If you, turn, if you want to say the Ten Commandments are the basis of our law or the basis to our morality or the basis to our social contract, you have to be willingly ignorant. You have to be knowingly um, mm-hmm. avoiding the issues. Because, as you said, most of it's egocentrism anyway. And, and, and I've identified, it might be others, but I've only identified three half-decent things in there. Um, that every you know, other society has anyway. Has them anyway, that's right, yeah. And the idea that, that, that before the Ten Commandments, you could go around killing and stealing and with gay abandon, you know. Exactly. And talk about gay abandon. There's another funny thing, isn't there? Because there's a new podcast called The Gaytheist. And... <laughs> And I'm all for it, um, but isn't it, it just goes, just points, doesn't it, to the hang-up of religion, sex, because it's irrelevant. Sexuality is completely irrelevant. Yeah, and that's why uh, I, I'm, I'm still trying to struggle with how I want to term my moral outlook, but for lack of a better term, I kind of, and I'm probably not the first to say this, I'm sure, but create this kind of dichotomy between what I consider to be universal morality, and that's certainly other pe- that's all been long been coined, and then what I call arbitrary morality. And of course, like we already said, morality is a mixed bag. We seem to be wired, as you said, towards in this kind of xenophobic way, wired for violence and tribalism, and in this kind of endo way, you know, yeah. wired for empathy and compassion. Sure. Um, but there does seem to be certain universal constants that uh, obviously the world is a messed up place where people using all sorts of excuses to commit barbarous and atrocious acts. But generally speaking, uh, whether it's some mud hut in a rainforest or whether it's in a, a gigantic metropolis, if you walk up to someone and kill another person for no reason other than you felt like it, people are going to be aghast, you know? And sure. uh, so there are these kind of universal moral precepts, generally speaking. I, I don't know if there's any such thing as objective morality, uh, but then there's also what I like to call arbitrary morality. There are things that don't involve doing harm to other people. There are things that don't involve saying, you know, that don't involve drawing from empathy and saying, I wouldn't like it if someone did this to me, so I won't do it to them. But there's yes. things like not eating shellfish, yeah, not this picking is a, this up is a, sticks on the Sabbath. Not this is a useful yet. dichotomy. It's, it, there are yeah. some blurry parts, but I think it's quite a useful analysis to break down morality into these two aspects one which we could see a biological potential and therefore genetic and genetic codification of the morality and one where it's so arbitrary as you put it that there's no basis upon which that could be codified yeah, and homosexuality falls into that and the whole thing with leviticus you know killing a man for lying with another man and i think not like like you've been saying not like these things should matter we should know better and we should be better but i i think i've heard it explained a couple of times uh that this might not even act necessarily even having to do with an inherent revulsion 
for homosexuality, but supposedly the newly monotheistic religion of Judaism, or what would become Judaism, was in competition with pagan, you know, po- with polytheistic religions sure. that had all these weird gender-bending uh, cultic rituals and practices, yeah, and so some which, of the, which is hard to control, yeah. So and so it's possible that that kind of injunction against homosexuality might have had something to trying to keep people away from competing religions, but not like it should matter. Our human decency decency should tell us that if two grown people want to enjoy the company, whether out of lust or love of someone of the same sex and we're not being hurt by it who cares you know sure we started off talking about the differences between america and britain and here's an area which i think we can we can apply here which um i i there was um there's it is not a new i this is not a new concept but uh from who tried to describe uh where nazis came from mm-hmm. um basically wrote about the escape from freedom at things were too free in Germany and they escaped the freedom to Nazism. Now I think this is very dodgy and very poor, but at the same time he talked about two types of freedom, negative freedom and positive freedom. And it seems to me that America um, has a bit of a love affair with individual freedom or negative freedom, the freedom from, freedom from the government, the freedom from this and that and the other. And those things are very much enshrined in the Constitution, the freedom from restrictions on speech. Whereas in Europe, we've had, it seems to me, a more collective concept of freedom, as in the freedom to, uh, for example, the freedom to walk into a hospital and obviously... Not be killed or... <laughs> well, no, no, to be treated, to be treated in the hospital, because oh, okay. obviously we've had our individual freedom restricted because they've taken taxes off us, mm-hmm. and they've pooled it together to give us collective freedom in terms of, in terms of hospital. I'm not saying America doesn't have that as well. It may be a slightly different balance. But, I, but the reason why I tie this into what you said is we can go back tens of thousands, I think maybe 60 or 80,000 years ago, there is uh, at least one instance of, uh, I, I think there's many actually, of a human that could not possibly have survived, could not possibly have hunted, could not possibly, probably not even have eaten because their teeth were such in a terrible state, mm-hmm. without the help of others. Right. So to me, this, what you called endo, this inward-looking um, aspect of humanity, and I do think it's probably humanity, it's not, it's not culture, it's probably... It's probably Innate genet- species. Yeah, genetic right. component. Is this desire to care for each other? And it goes back a very long way. And, and I think we, own, we, are, we are only, we, again, earlier we talked talk, talk about sending a man to the moon. That you can't do that with individual freedom. You only <laughs> do right. that collectively. You can only do that by grouping together and, and working together in the hundreds of thousands, as it turns out, to, to achieve something as fan- phenomenal. We forget how phenomenal that was. To achieve something as fantastic as that, and it's great disappointment that we've really retreated on that front. But anyway, exactly. Then there was the land. What was it? The landing on the comet, which took place recently, which was oh, fantastic! A European yeah. thing, of course. That's yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But putting that aside, you know, it, you know, you're talking about this about this this this, this breaking down the morality to the arbitrary to, and, and to the to the less arbitrary, and I would say that the that. That we have evidence going back a very long way that this there's an endemic aspect of humanity which is to care for each other. We we tend 
we have, I think, society has to make us walk past the crash site or the, the fallen person out of fear that they might be to mug us or whatever. We have to be taught not to care for each other. Uh, and, and I would have said that, that the religion has a part to play in this. You know, we've been taught about, um, well, even that, even what I've taught, what I learned from the Good Samaritan is that all Samaritans are bastards apart from that one. You know, <laughs> even in the, in the hidden messages you get behind the one you're told, you know, these, all these, it, this is all training. And training takes us away from what's endemic in us, the caring, the, the beautiful thing about humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, it touches upon a few things we've talked about. What's fantastic about us is only undermined and demeaned by religion, in my belief. Yeah, I think that's true, and I was going and and what and this sounds like maybe this might be unfair, and but the bits that are good about religion, as uh, you know, I was quoting Hitchens, uh, you know, religion. We don't get our morality from religion. Religion gets its morality from us, and those sure. are things you find. I know. I said some culture. Sometimes that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I think um, you're right. You know, if you look at ancient hominid fossils or whatever are uh, fossils of, um, this might sound contradictory, but ancient, quote-unquote, modern man or modern humans. No, absolutely right, yep. Um, You can see people who had severe injuries that healed and were, you know, most likely because they had uh, support and care from uh, their fellows or whatever. And also, I think, you know, and, and it's not one or the other. Like I often say, we're a mixed bag, and the same applies for animals. You know, sometimes um, Christian apologists might say, well, you know, if we were like animals, we'd be horrible. The an- animal kingdom is all, you know, nature, red and tooth and claw and everything. But animals are a mixed bag like us. It's true. You can find cannibalism and infanticide and all these things in uh in nature, but, but also without a reason. I, I think there's a, usually a reason for it, Phil. Mm-hmm. It's, o- it's only it's only human society that kills on the basis of a war. Well, maybe chimpanzees to a degree do. Well, there but are so takes... much like us chimpanzees. It's sure. Yeah, I mean, and uh, I mean, it was Jane Goodall who uh, I sometimes on the show I'll talk about the dark side of chimpanzees. About yeah. how we used to think they were kind of these wise, gentler cousins of ours. And in a lot of ways, they are. You know, they share child-raising responsibilities. They groom one another. They seem to, to comfort one another uh, emotionally and things like that. And uh, But at the same time, it goes to that endo-exo type of uh, yeah. thing again, where chimpanzees... Male chimpanzees in roving bands will chase down lone males from other bands and ravage and beat them to death. Absolutely. And uh, this, here and there, there's been some instances of cannibalism and infanticide among uh, chimps. And I think it's no coincidence that they're our closest genetic relative. But I mean, I like to look at things like even a crocodile, which is considered almost like this cold-blooded killing machine, <laughs> that the same jaws it will use to do like a death roll and tear flesh, it will it will respond to the chirping of its hatchlings oh, yeah, yeah. and guide them gently into the water. And I sure. think the, the maternal instinct, which is so evident, at least in mammals and in other animals too, is 
a fine example of kind of proto-morality or something like that. And there's animals like monkeys and meerkats that, even though they're putting themselves at risk, will mm. set off a vocal alarm when they yeah, look out for each other. Yeah, a, a predator. So yeah, it's. Um, I think we can basically see the roots of morality in what scientists call proto-ethics and animal altruism and absolutely like so again i would say if you uh, rather like the spirit deities you have another mechanism which is ripe for corruption uh, uh, you know I, this might be something that i i think about uh, i guess i do think about a lot but once you have structures structure in um in society there is there is scope for someone to get their teeth into it and you know again once you see this kind of morality there's also the ability to to play on that morality i'll give you an example with the the uh i'm trying to think of a good one but there are various examples of uh, of animals pretending to be a different kind of animal (laughs) for for a malevolent purpose i can't the one doesn't come to mind well i'm thinking Um, like uh I know there's certain octopi or whatever that will <coughs> camouflage themselves and wait till an animal passes over them. Uh, th- there's a lot of animals like that that will use camouflage to lie in wait. What's that sure. spider? I forget what they call it. Uh, the trapdoor spider. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm th- I think, yeah, maybe maybe we're staying a little bit. But I mean, I think in the I think along the lines of of again we have something in human nature, which uh, gives scope for someone for someone. To, to use it to their advantage. Once you have morality towards each other, you have uh, an opening for someone to create a religion out of those morality, out of those ideas. And I, I would say corrupt those ideas. Ah. To drag them from what they were, to convert them into what you call arbitrary morality. Because it's, 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 it's available to be perverted, isn't it? You know, it's funny what jumped to... Once I got the gist of what you were saying, what jumped to my mind, I was, I don't know if this is an apt uh, example or if we're on the same page, but I thought of uh, Jim Jones and his Jonestown cult, how he started off as being this kind of social justice Christian and ended up amassing more and more power and exerting more and more control until you ended up with a mass suicide and partially mass murder because some of the people were were uh, killed at gunpoint and people some people were forced to drink the uh poison kool-aid kind of a ghoulish example hopefully not no i i i think (laughs) it is it is quite apt in a way i mean a religion to me a religion a a religion is only a cult that's grown up frankly i mean all Uh, you know they all start off as cults sure and 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 what are these cults i mean what Okay, we can't go back to... I wish I could go back and watch what happened 2,000 oh, years ago. Me too. I wish I could go back 10,000, all these different times I'd have to go back. We can't do that. All we can do is look at the modern parallels. And what do we see over and over again? We see an individual who is usually quite controlling, mm-hmm. who builds a circle around themselves, who very early on, very often, starts controlling sexuality, Right, I get. I get back to that. It's a primal thing. It's very. Once you've got your hands on that, you have got your hands on people by the balls. Joseph literally. Smith. Joseph Smith. <laughs> over and over. Absolutely. And yeah. just recently, there was there was a guy. I forget the story, but it came up um, in, in the usual usual sources. Um, a cult leader who was basically saying that, that no one in this in this actually it was a church or something. It was a church. 
a Christian church, and the 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 head man, a pastor, I think you'd call him over there, um, was saying, you know, you, you, it was preventing them having sex with each other, it was was not allowing them to have children, was was institutionalising abortion, I think, you know, and um, obviously it's not going to last very long that particular religion because it's got a pretty <laughs> pretty poor <laughs> chance of reproducing itself, right. but you know, the modern parallels show you over and over again, you get an individual who concentrates power, controls sexuality, and manipulates people. Um, and unless, unless everyone's, someone's going to turn to me and saying all these people were separately, individually inspired by God, I think we have perfect examples of how religions are created. But opportunity to manipulate people, to per- pervert their real endemic morality, the stuff you're talking about, to pervert it into arbitrary morality, again, to use your definition, mm-hmm. Uh, in order to control people. And it seems to be over and over again about sex. Yeah, it always starts off with some kind of uh, charismatic figure, Mm. and they usually end up being a deeply morally flawed individual when all is said and done. And, yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, like, for some reason, it's kind of comical, but Joseph Smith and uh, Mormonism popped up. Then you Heaven's hate, Gate, you could you could Heaven's you could list, Gate, it, you there, could loads of them. And it's funny, like Heaven's Gate wasn't as lascivious as some of the others, where sometimes the leader will use sexual control to enjoy himself sexually with other members of the cult. Whereas Heaven's Gate, he basically denied them sexuality, uh, or basically denied them sexual uh, indulgence, where I think the males were instructed to castrate themselves, or either that they might have like flown to, uh, they flew to some other country to be surgically castrated or something sure. like that. But yeah, it's, it's, you're so right. It usually starts off with a charismatic... Uh, figure who, who get, goes power mad and it usually has yeah. something to do with uh, sexuality and, and then of course there was it, um, what was it there was uh, Waco yep um, I can't believe it just uh, slipped my mind oh the Branch Davidians sure. David, Kur- yep. David Koresh there's another example where he exactly. was almost trying to be like a biblical King David where he got to enjoy uh, his pick of the, the females or whatever. Uh, yep. Yeah, it, it happens stuff. over and over again. And I, I, like I say, these are case studies. We can't go back in time. The only way we can analyze it is by looking at modern parallels. If we want to look at a primitive, and I hate to use the word, but primitive our society, you look at a society that lives in the same sort of conditions as the primitive society of ours. You go back, you have to use modern parallels. And... Um, like I say, you know, you have these these examples over and over again, and and also part of the mechanism which works repeatedly. Um, this is from psychology. Um, there's, I won't bother going into the technical detail, but the idea is commitment. Once you've committed yourself a certain amount, it's a darn sight easier to carry on committing than to admit to yourself that you've just given away all your stuff mm-hmm. or castrated yourself for God's sake. <laughs> Right, That's and right. you were wrong. I mean, walk back from that one, man. You know, walk back and say, "Okay, I was wrong." Now, can I be bollocks back? And now, can I also have <laughs> money back? It's not going to happen, is it? So, um, you know, so it's, it's called commitment theory for, for a reason, um, and, and it, it's it's true in scams, money scams. It's you in advertising. It's used all sorts of different ways. This 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 idea that once you commit yourself past a certain level, the more you sacrifice. 
where it should be easier to dump it because you realise this is just, it can't be true if I've got to give all this stuff away. The opposite, in fact, happens. It's rather like putting a high price on something. If you charge double for the, for the Rolls-Royce, you think the Rolls-Royce must be worth having. Yeah, that's so right. And uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, and I, I think that I, I've never heard of that before, and I'm very uh, thankful you brought it up, commitment theory. Sure. And, I'll give uh, you a very, very slimmed-down version of it. That's a good point, because I think, you know, it's probably like a bullion base. There's probably other factors like suspension sure. of disbelief and things like yes. that. But okay, uh, it's the way of getting through cognitive dissonance to a degree is commitment. Because you're commit so committed, you don't ha- you don't, the dissonance doesn't drive you to give up. X. And that makes me think about uh, like Scientology, when we have some of these absolutely like Hollywood big shots that must know the truth about L. Ron Hubbard that he started off as a you know he was literally a science fiction author, sure, and that um, really prolific too. Yeah, and and how um, and just these really mundane facts. Like I think originally he wanted Scientology to almost be like a, a kind of psychology, but sure. I, I think the the actual like mainstream psychology didn't want him, and he <laughs> ended up going with a church status. I sure. think largely for tax reasons. Absolutely, Absolutely. and um, and then we end up with this built-in. Um, animosity or resentment of mainstream psychology or psychiatry uh, within Scientology. And then we know that, and this used to be carefully guarded stuff, but now with the internet, a- anyone who has access to Google can find it out, that the, uh, the higher you advance in levels within Scientology, eventually you learn the whole kind of bizarre creation <laughs> mythos about Lord Xenu, the, the spaceships and the atom well, it's bombs. it's too late by then. You've, you've, you, I mean, forget commitments. There's something called psychological accounting, which is when you value something because of the price again to put it very simply like that like that the rolls royce is worth a lot because it costs a lot that's kind of psychological counting which is a branch of commitment theory but think of commitment theory in a more in a more general sense for your hollywood stars that once you've got 10 million who cares right mm-hmm. um so let's say you've got 100 million and you give 90 million to the whatever cult it, frankly, it not, doesn't really matter to your life that much. Not, not really. Once you read the first few million, you, there's not much more you can get. Uh, the odd helicopter or whatever. You can still live in luxury. Easily, yeah, exactly. Right? But, but these people have made a public commitment. For them, it's a face-saving thing. That for them to walk out of their religion is going to be really hard because they're going to have to say to the public, I was wrong. I was, I was wrong. stupid. I was mugged. And it's not the money. It's the admitting I was mugged. And then some of them have been in it for so long that there's also, you have to come to grips with the fact that you wasted, what, I don't know, 15 or 20 years of your life or how, however long it was. Again, Phil, we shouldn't bring my marriage into this. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't as bad as Scientology. but <laughs> you, you weren't part I'll of never it. know. <laughs> well, say, yeah, well, uh I feel bad for the suckers in the Sea Org. They, well, they they have that special branch that they call the Sea Org, short for Sea Organization or something like that. And there's people who basically, for slave wages, are forced oh, yeah. to clean like Tom Cruise's boat or something like that. Yeah, but hang on a minute. Is that is is that so different from the Mormon paying for their own mission? Right. Well, Mormonism is another one. I'd put 
uh, Mormonism and Scientology into the same basket in a sense. In that, sure. Modern. Um, and Sam, I, I remember, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast, The Young Turks, uh, hosted by Cenk Uger. But I've this, seen bits of the, uh, when, it, when, when something's come up, I've seen the clips. Yeah, it's an online news show, and I'm actually a fan, but for a while there was some tension because uh, after that whole fallout where Ben Affleck clashed yep. with uh, Sam Harris, yep. and, and uh, Sam Harris was being... Uh, accused of being Islamophobic, etc. The Young yeah. Turks, who also uh, many of the the hosts are openly a- atheist, uh, agnostic, they uh, sided with Ben Affleck, kind of. Yeah. Um, and so it's an interesting but cringe-inducing watch. Sam yeah. Harris went on the Young Turks and did a three-hour sure. kind of contentious interview, and. Um, one of the things they were arguing over is that Sam Harris was saying that it's kind of more ridiculous to believe in younger or newer religions like Mormonism and Scientology than to believe in the ancient ones, whereas Cenk Uger was saying that they're all equally... Uh, Objectively, they're all, yes. They're all equally ridiculous. But I side with Sam Harris in the fact that the Abrahamic faiths are, go so far back into the mists of time and are so far removed from us, and we know so little about yes. their formation. You can this, put some excuses in there, can't you? Yeah, there's a little patina of, it, of validity, or like they've been grandfathered in a little, even though yeah. you and I obviously don't believe in the faith claims. But no. something like we know L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction author. We know he went with the church status because we know he went with the church designation for the tax status. It's an easier debunk, isn't it? That's we, what it is. It's, we know that Joseph Smith claimed that he found golden plates inscribed with a language called Reformed Egyptian, which which Egypt where Egyptologists tell us doesn't exist. Yeah, and we bollocks. know that Native Americans are an indigenous people that have nothing in common with ancient yes. Israelites. Yes. You know, so it's like we can it's easier to see the BS yes. factor with newer religions, I think. Absolutely. Yes, it, it's <laughs> it, it, it telegraphed, isn't it? They they, yeah. they they it's obvious. And I guess logically it's quite obvious that some of the stuff in the Bible or the Quran or whatever is crap, but right. You can there's 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 gray areas and fudges and you can say yeah but it and there's room for you to say yes but it might mean this and you haven't got the room in a relatively modern writer right yeah uh, we have like Joseph Smith's arrest records and you know his, yeah yeah and, exactly, and all yeah. stuff like that but Jesus uh, I'm 99.9 percent probably pretty safe saying he didn't walk on water or raise the dead but we weren't there 2,000 years ago so yeah <laughs> so at the point we don't know what the writers were trying to convey when they said that so we we there may right. be how figurative might, were they being it, yeah and it was been translated three times maybe we haven't quite got the meaning quite exactly there's fudge area isn't there's room for maneuver mm-hmm. and of course uh i i th- you know we have i think you uh well, i was reading the article it said that you come from a unitarian background no no well you no don't? no that's no, false no. too the last 
No, no, it's not wrong. It's just the last church I went to was the Unitarian Church. Ah, okay, okay. Because I was going to ask you, because I think some of the founding, like Washington was something like, had an association with Unitarianism and then Episcopalianism. Now, the Unitarians, uh, are they an example of Christians who reject some of those supernatural elements like the virgin birth and things like that? I think they're... I think they're a soft landing. Uh, so, oh, so what do you mean by the, the kind of a mushy kind of approach to it? No, 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 I mean a soft landing, as in as in, if you jump off a tower block, you want a soft landing, not a hard landing, right? If you right. jump away from religion, you quite want a soft landing. Rather. Uh, I mean, like, if uh, I was yes, going to recommend yeah. a podcast for the fresh new atheist who just rejected religion, I would not be saying, why don't you tune into cognitive dissonance? Right. That would not be my first point of call. I would find them something much softer landing than that. Like something. a friendly agnostic or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something gentle to not <laughs> scare you. them off. I you know. you. <laughs> um, and I'm not knocking Cecil or Tom, by the way, because I love what they do, but they, they, they freely admit they're preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. They're not there to convert anyone. Um, so, like I say, I think, you know, that, that to me, I think, I think from my limited experience of Unitarianism, which is very limited, it's a soft landing for for people who are, who are in training to be atheists. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. That's funny. That's, that's just how I see it. I mean, like I say, I only, I, I only went a couple of times. It was just something I wanted to dip my toe into. Uh, there was no belief involved. So the, the, that's, my, that's my last church experience was Unitarian. Well, that, that's funny because that's kind of like me. Like I mentioned how I dabbled with Eastern religion, even though I don't believe in some of the supernatural trappings of uh, Eastern religion any more than I believe in the supernatural claims of uh, the Abrahamic faiths. I still have integrated some of the teachings about compassion and stuff and the, the use, even the usefulness of meditation and things like that. Um, but cool. I, I sometimes half-jokingly refer to Buddhism, uh, how it was like training whales for atheism to me, be, for, for me, because even though Buddhism's the daughter religion of Hinduism, kind of like Christianity's the daughter religion of Judaism. Sure. Um, and Hinduism has a plethora of gods. Buddhism was kind of is kind of agnostic on, on God. It doesn't really care about the gods. It's all about trying to find your own liberation, basically through the annihilation of the ego. Yeah. And, and it kind of shows you that you don't need to have belief in a creator god to have a sense of quote-unquote spirituality. It's one of those things, isn't it, Phil? It's it's the Western Buddhism, the Buddhism over here, if you like, or over there for you, is that that kind of rather nice, um, you know, be at peace with everything, oneness. But I guess Mm -hmm. if you're in the wrong country where the Buddhists are fighting whoever else, um, you know, I guess, guess, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? South Asia, where recently there's been Buddhists uh, decapitating people. uh, And I think even, uh, was it like the, I don't know if it's the Tamil Tigers or whatever, but there's some violent Buddhist elements in in different uh, organizations and conflicts, uh, unfortunately. Sure, I, I think it, it, I think that that Hitchin says religion poisons everything. Well, I'm not sure whether I'd use that phrase myself, but I think it, it empowers poisoning. It gives its legs, you know. It gives you gives you a reason to do terrible things. Well, yeah, that's funny because the way I uh, I often talk about that too, and the way I, I talk about it as a kind of 
accelerant. Like, uh, yeah. I, I remember yeah. watching uh, an interview with the American horror novelist uh, Stephen King. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about how kind of similar to certain rock musicians like Marilyn Manson, he had been accused of creating works that supposedly led young people to commit acts of violence. Like, I think he had a short story that had to do with school violence or something like that. And he said something like, I don't think that a Marilyn Manson record or a Stephen King novel can make someone kill someone, but no. it can work as something of an accelerant. And I think that's true with religion, where, like we were saying a couple of times, humans are partially naturally tribalistic. So even if there was no religion, people would probably still fight over land and resources, and whatever. Football. Yeah, and football. But um, religion certainly does act as an accelerant. It's an enabler, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. It's um, the ultimate excuse. And, and, and because it's so vague and, and you can draw whatever you want from it, you can excuse anything with it. Anything. Absolutely. I can't think of anything you can't excuse with a passage from a Bible, from the Bible, for example. Yeah. And, and it gets, and it's, it does work as an accelerant. And it gets to a point where it gets blurry. And it's hard to suss out where does religion end and the political motivations uh, begin. But certainly, uh, you know, we look at some stuff like Boko Haram right now in ISIS, mm. some very ugly stuff. And, yes, uh, don't don't tell me that story again. <laughs> oh, jeez, that's. I right. think it's, I think it's worse secondhand through Phil Abelli. Yeah, probably, it? yeah. I, I still haven't watched it live, mine. I'm not going to either. The, uh, the burning of the. <laughs> well, like, sometimes I wonder whether 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 it's better to watch it than to think it. Right. What was, uh, what, what I put in your imagination, was it worse yeah. than the actual? Yeah. Visual? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not complaining, but I'm just I'll, saying that, I'll you know, try just... not to describe it again, but I'll say yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. It's so bad. It sticks with you. It's, uh, pretty nasty stuff. And it was kind of strange how, um, if you did a, some people saying that video was hard to find, but when I did a search for it, the first thing that came up was Fox News. Yeah, and Fox, Fox News streamed it. Yeah. yeah, and Fox News caught a lot of flack because people were comparing it to torture porn, etc. Did you need to leave in the twenty minutes where it's just people speaking in Arabic or whatever? But I would argue at least that kind of cushions you and gives sure. you time to brace yourself. There's a program over here which is which you probably never heard of. Um, uh, and the name escapes me, but th th there was a they 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 brought up a fantastic point. They showed other Fox News videos, which was of a nudist beach, and they covered all the private parts of the right. people on the beach with black squares. And the question was, what's going to happen if Boko, if if um, uh, ISIS uh, want to murder someone naked because they're going to implode in an internal problem? Uh, where to put the black squares? <laughs> because it's not disgusting to watch someone die horribly, but it is disgusting to show someone's knob. That is uh, so true, and that goes into that weird kind of repress. Oh, into sex again. <laughs> yeah, it's like God made the body, so it's supposed to be beautiful. It's a divine creation, but it's dirty, repulsive, and disgusting, and how dare you show it. And that's how we control you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that is true. You can't show nudity, uh, but... 
you can show the flesh melting off someone's skull, and there I just put part of the uh, Thank video you. back in there. <laughs> Thank uh, you for that. <laughs> I feel bad laughing about it, because that guy must No, you, you have hell, to. What yeah, other choice have you got? Kind of like gallows humor, I guess. Yeah. You've got no other choice. I mean, um, I, 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 as you know, I've I, I experienced some extreme situations deliberately. I put myself into situations. I'm not... I'm not pretending it, it was it was I was an innocent party drawn in unwillingly, mm-hmm. but I put myself into these difficult situations. I've met the most famous killers in this country that are, that are alive um, because by definite because we don't bang people up permanently. The prison culture in this country that we don't have as much, we do have a bit of it. We're not as good as I'd like us to be, but we, you have a very punitive legal system, don't mm-hmm. you? Oh yeah, I mean. Um we still have capital punishment, sure. you know, and, and supposedly, uh, and I have, um, I, I don't even want, I won't even go into my views on capital punishment. I, I think mine might be, um, I think we should err on the side of caution and be better to get rid of it at the risk of putting an innocent person sure. to death. And there's already, already been cases where barely in the nick of time, you know, DNA sure. evidence has saved people. And often but, after the nick of time. Yeah, yeah exactly. But then there's but, but been putting, uh, But putting, uh, park all that aside, mm-hmm. um, over, over here, if, if I'm going to meet someone who's never going to get out of prison, right? The, these aren't offenders like you might have in America who won't see the light of day again. In this country, if you're, not going to, if you're never going to be out of prison, that means you are one of the worst people in this country. Okay, like some kind of crazy serial killer or something. Yeah, like yes, that. that's, they're the people I met. Um, because by definition, if I want to meet someone who could never get... Because if the extremity of the extreme situation isn't extreme, if you can perceive yourself coming out of prison again. Now, this actually fascinates me, um, because I, I assume you're doing it uh, for some reason as part of your uh, career as a side psychologist or out of curiosity, scientific curiosity as a psychologist, it reminds me of I've seen uh, videos of similar uh, situations of psychologists here in America or like forensic psychologists interviewing serial killers. If you can ever look it up, I forget the name of the doctor, but there's a uh, psychologist who interviews a killer, a hitman, who used to go by the moniker of the Iceman. And he was just a complete uh, psychopath who used to work for the mob, but he was beyond a mob hitman. This is a guy who loved what he did. Um, he re- it's good to enjoy your work. Yeah, I mean, a guy who happily recounts the fir- how the first time he killed someone, he just drove up. He was in a car and just happened to pull up beside, like, I think might have been a random car, or if I don't know if it was one of his hits, and blew apart a guy's face with a shotgun. And he mm-hmm. used to tie people up leave them in a cave with rats and leave a camera going and would record the rats eating people alive. And the the psychologist who was interviewing the guy was at times intentionally pushing his buttons to get a reaction. And you could (laughs) see the guy getting mad. And uh, (laughs) I think the guy's last name was Kuklinski, and he used to be called the Iceman. So if people want to look this crap up on on HBO, uh, no, it was on HBO, I think. But if people want to look it up on YouTube, it's probably somewhere. But so was that kind of like you and kind of in the role of a psychologist you were interviewing these people? My my, my interest, it's kind of 
it's kind of stupid as well because I kind of believe I can't achieve it. It's kind of a search for authenticity. It's a search for what what really a human really is. Mm-hmm. And the the like I said, we we talked about religion, uh, but there's many other mechanisms as well which build up this kind of uh, onion of skins of, of layers of of um, societal impressions and. Uh, and, and various complexities that that prevent us well, prevent us having access to what a human really is. And if I want to know what a re- human really is, I need to see those shells come off. And for me, the extreme situation, such as never coming out of prison again, um, or facing death in a war, uh, and many other situations uh, that you can could think of, in extremists, the idea is that a lot of those social conventions will not exactly peel away, but they'll be a little bit exposed and we might get a little bit underneath and reveal more about the state, the, the, the human condition. So to me, never coming out of prison again takes away the whole idea of being able to perceive oh. yourself in the future. And the yeah. dying man doesn't able to, isn't able to perceive themselves in the future. And so these situations are interesting to me as a, as a not in themselves, but as a mechanism for unlocking humanity. And that, that's a great point, because someone who has no chance of ever yes. getting out of prison has no reason to uh, bluff or hide. They can be their monstrous self, in a way. And by analyzing the extreme, you can get a better sense of what people on the spectrum are capable of. Yes. There was a guy, I was with someone who had killed... and. and like I say, for me to meet someone who's never, never going to come out again, they won't have killed once, they'd have killed several times at least. Um, because, like I say, because in our system, people do have a chance of coming out again. Uh, I, and I believe, generally, generally speaking, rightly so. Um, but that's another argument. Um, anyway, this guy was very interesting to me. Um, and because even in that extreme situation where he was going to, he couldn't perceive himself out in society again, he couldn't perceive himself with all the societal stuff that we all take for granted. He only had the prison system to live in. Mm-hmm. And I had t- stuff on the table. And he sat there and he ordered it all nice and neatly into neat little piles, right? He was a bit like that. So he got everything lined up with the table, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, notes and stuff. And we all, just while we were chatting, it was only just fiddling, while he, you know, like anyone would fiddle with stuff. And, but he was lining everything up. And once he got it absolutely perfect, I kind of, inverted commas, accidentally leaned across the table and brushed it all irregular oh, again. Oh, man. Okay. To see what would happen. And he just looked at me and laughed. And at that moment, you know, there was an insight between us, you know. And oh, that could have gone horribly wrong, granted, but <laughs> I take, I take wow. risks. <laughs> but it yeah, was that is risk-taking. That we, that one, that moment, we... Because I don't come from an, from an academic background. I was a truck driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, I come from a working-class background. Um, and at that moment, you know, we were of the same mind because he saw what I did, I saw what he did, and it was a joke between us. And, you know, we didn't dwell on it very much, but it was interesting to me how he had insight to himself and to me, and I had insight into him and me. You know what I mean? We had that kind yeah. of reference point and i was gonna say yeah and to you as well because he was able to to make a joke of it you know yeah <laughs> and that told I, I don't know what i learned from that experience i guess i learned that um i guess i learned 
just something that couldn't be academically put down. I, I learned what we all know, that people in prison are ordinary people. They have done extraordinary things sometimes, but a hell of a lot of them are just ordinary people with the same hang-ups and the same sense of humour. And I've, I've, I've had a cigarette with a, someone who's killed many, many children. He, he bought me a card for my wedding. Wow. Um, uh, you know, I, I, a prisoner to buy you a card is actually quite a thing. Obviously, I'm quite pleased that the prison service posted it to me, not him. <laughs> right. I don't want to know my address. Your address, I'm right. Glad, I'm glad he will never get out again um, because he's killed many children and would kill many children again. Um, uh, but in the situation we were in, he was a nice guy. We got on really well. I see him on the TV sometimes and the images are processed to make him look evil, which I think is despicable because it stops telling people people should know that ordinary people can be dangerous the idea that killers are all mad-eyed freaks is dangerous to us and i yeah i'm not even saying it out of sympathy uh, for these people but for the sake of everyone and for people yeah them even as a cautionary tale tale absolutely no i'm not interested in him at all in that aspect even though we got on fine we Mm -hmm. knew each other for a couple of years and it was great and you know and i thought he was a really nice guy so long as he's banged up and doesn't see like a day again um but that's that in itself is a lesson isn't it it's the pulp fiction lesson the the film teaches us that that, you know that the pulp fiction film teaches us Mm -hmm. that no matter what you do for a living, you have ordinary needs and ordinary fears and ordinary, you know, like stuff. The hitmen uh, eating cheeseburgers and stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah. No, yeah, that's so true. Cause I'm misquoting the Bible. Oh, yeah, that that's true. Yeah, the, <laughs> uh, the Samuel Jackson's character is it uh, is, is like yeah. religious. Um, but yeah, that's funny because I, I think even I catch myself doing that when someone does something so heinous that we can't even get it to compute we can't understand how they could do that we want to see them as the other we want to fully demonize them absolutely um and it reminds me of like we were talking about the death penalty earlier and in connecticut uh and it still haunts me it was probably a few years back i don't know if it made the news over there there was a story about the pettit family there was this doctor, uh, I forget his first name, last name, uh, Pettit, uh, and it, it was him, his wife, and two daughters, kind of like this ideal family living in a big home in Connecticut, and there are these two uh, convicts who had been released. I don't even want to say their names because I, it's kind of like I wish they could be erased from the history books, but instead of just trying to start their lives again or whatever these two guys hook up and decide to commit you know just this atrocious act or i don't know how much the act was spur of the moment but anyway they target this house they beat the father severely with a pipe or something tie him to a pole in the basement they one of the convicts stays with the with the family while another one drives uh, makes the, the the wife drive him to a bank and goes, you know, makes her go into the bank and withdraw a bunch of money. And she manages to convey to the teller that she's being held hostage and something right. really bad's right. going on. And so the police kind of canvass the area 
but it takes them a while. I don't know if it's an hour or an hour or more before they actually enter the house. And in that interim, they, one of the, the criminals, um, rapes the youngest daughter who isn't even a teenager yet. And another one of the criminals thinks, Hey, that's not fair. Why do you get to do that? So he rapes the wife. Then they decide they have to destroy the evidence. So they burn the whole house with the two daughters and the wife inside tied up. They burn alive to death and the father manages to escape and get to the neighbors. And all this happens before the police take action. And and even though Connecticut um, didn't have the death penalty, there was a lot of conversation of whether it should be implemented again because of that case. And that's one of those cases I hear about it and I think like, these guys should be slowly cut into one inch cubes and dumped <laughs> into a shark tank or something, you know, sure. just like all these horrible yeah. things coming. Yeah, well, I think mind. when I, but. when I talk about my experience, it's very easy to make the mistake that I feel sympathy for these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's not, that's not it at all. I mean, for example, I, I don't believe in capital punishment, but I'll give you the, uh, the, 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 the reason, well, a very simple reason why I don't um, imagine you have these two guys. It's a fairly, it's not an, unimaginable situation these the same guys you're talking about okay Mm -hmm. and they go to a bank and they hold the bank up and they've got all this all the staff in the bank uh and they shot one of them now the police surround the bank and say come out of your hands up now i would say in society a the message from the police is look come on in you're only going to make it worse for yourself now Come on in, because you can't get out of this situation. Right. In society B, shall we say America, (laughs) the police can only say, they can lie, maybe, they can tell stories, but ultimately, these guys know they've killed someone and they're going to burn. What's to stop them killing more hostages and shooting their way out and doing whatever they can? Purely because it's human nature, no matter what these people have done. I'm not, no sympathy for them at all. But the wow. fact is, human nature, they're going to try and preserve their own life at the cost of anyone else's. So it's very practically. The, That's an interesting point. The death penalty costs lives. So instead of acting as a deterrent in certain cases, you're saying. It encourages. Not, yeah, because yeah, you're going to do whatever you can to avoid being uh, captured. Sure. Wow. That's well, no, my that's, take on it. Yeah. You know, I've got plenty of other reasons. It's very expensive to kill people. Incredibly. They're much more cheaper to keep them in prison with their lives. Well, that's fine. That reminds me of how, uh, you know, the, the states that conservative states that still have the death penalty here, and they were getting some of their drugs from, uh, I think, European countries that decided they no longer wanted to be involved with uh, capital punishment. So it left like these uh, prison systems trying to get their hands uh, on these drugs in all sorts of weird, shady ways. Very mm. bizarre. Wow. <laughs> That's just, I mean, it's just weird, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. It does seem to me irrational to kill people. Irrational and counterproductive. That's all, really. And I suppose rationality is what I appeal to all the time. And there is one argument to be made, too, uh, and this probably make me look like somewhat... Of a, of a sadist, but some of us will say, 
another reason for keeping the people alive in a retribute uh, uh, retributive context or whatever uh, is that perhaps staying alive in prison is is a worse punishment than quickly being killed. But I kind of don't care. I mean, once they're out of circulation, I don't care. Yeah, and that was kind of my response to. I told you about that guy who. Who we found out afterwards was an atheist who uh, yeah. supported LGBT causes on Facebook and all this stuff, and he shot point blank in the head these uh, three innocent Muslim mm. kids. Um, I, I I think the post I I don't post a lot on uh, news sites, but it moved me enough that I posted on the Huffington Post. I said. Well, whatever he was, he certainly, judging by his actions, wasn't a secular humanist, and we need to remove this guy from society and throw away the key. So I didn't say I, I didn't even care if we killed him or not. I just thought mm. would, a person like this can't be in society. Yeah. Uh, selfishly, as well, selfishly, I, 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 at the moment, I'm not doing this for various reasons. I'm not involved in, in, in that aspect of my work at the moment. Um, but selfishly... W- what can I learn from a corpse? Well, as a psychologist, yeah, that's very true. And, and I, also, I, and when we're talking about um, the worst offenders, aren't those the people we need to learn from most to try and stop people being the worst offenders? That's actually a, a great point, too, and I wish you weren't being so uh, reasonable. And, and <laughs> oh, I could be unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, that's a great point, too, and I have to admit, as someone who's kind of fascinated by psychology, Myself, I actually think that is uh, a great resource to, to find out more about the human. Uh, I don't know the human depth or depths or yeah. what. Uh, I would say we aren't very good at it. No, and uh, one thing I've been, and this kind of ties in, so I'll selfishly bring up this point that's been knocking around in my head the last few days. Um, I've been thinking a lot about objective morality recently. And uh, it's something I, I didn't even really care or think. Well, I think I thought about it in my own way. I'm not a trained philosopher, but I've been hearing the term objective morality being brought up in a lot of theists versus uh, atheists. I just interrupt you to say that I'm not sure what a trained philosopher is, but we'll let that yeah, go. I'm just like a naturally philosophical <laughs> person. No, and sometimes a trained I, philosopher sounds like a non-philosopher, but I'll let yeah, that go. <laughs> and so I'm a naturally philosophical person, and Got sometimes yeah. I think that a philosophy degree can do more harm than good sometimes because then you get these people kind of, instead of bringing up rational philosophical arguments yeah. and questions, you have yes. these kind of trained individuals gazing at their own yes. navel and bringing yes. up arguments from 400 years ago that might yes. not even be No pertinent. one taught me to play the bass guitar, and therefore I don't copy anybody else's style. That's a good point, and I didn't know you played the bass. So that's uh, I say I sing and write lyrics, but uh, no. Oh, well, I, I you see. I, I pretend I can do that, and I do play <laughs> guitar as well. But on live, when I'm playing live, I've, I, I don't in the moment, not for many years. But I've only ever played live bass. Uh, but like I say, I self-taught, um, and so I don't play. What I play comes from me, and maybe my my. Uh, by what I've heard in the past, well, certainly what I've heard will influence me. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I wasn't taught, it's it's you, you'd find you'd struggle to see exactly who I've copied, if you like. Now, what your point on philosophy is exactly the same point, isn't it? Yeah, actually, yeah. And if I, I can draw another parallel, I'm so, this sounds kind of 
egotistical or arrogant, but uh, I'm a naturally artistic person. I've been basically drawing and sketching or doodling. Ah, doodling. I can't do that. Yes, yeah, since I was, you know, basically since the crib. My parents have like uh, baptismal paperwork and stuff that has uh, doodles of lions and things on it. And th- th- not, probably not my. Well, if I did it on a baptismal pamphlet, I probably got a hold of it later. I'm sure I wasn't an infant who just got dunked and started drawing. But anyway, literally, <laughs> literally, <laughs> exactly. But literally, since I was small enough to still have to be kept in a pen, you know, but could yeah, yeah. stand up, uh, I was doodling and drawing and things like that. And when other kids were doing stick figures, I was kind of hinting at musculature and drawing kind of more fleshed out things. And... um Art teacher, like teachers in school, uh, art teachers and, and my parents and relatives would always try to push me to get professional art les- lessons, but I would resist because I would say, I want to do it my way. I don't yeah. want anyone else to teach me. And right. I think there's, there could be merit to that, but sometimes it can be folly too. Like there's, There are things to learn from other people. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's but- kind of like Picasso. Like uh, If you look at Picasso, I was blown away. I bought this little illustrated book about Pablo Picasso, and we're used to seeing like his blue period or his cubist period and these things that kind of naysayers would say it looks like a kid could draw or oh i could draw that you know yeah, right. but if you look at early works of picasso i think possibly still in his teenage years it's stuff that um looks like it's from the baroque period or right. maybe the renaissance i see i'm in a dali and however weird dali is the artwork is incredible or even like the persistence of time, you see the melt, you see the melting clocks, but yeah. you also see the light glimmering off the metal of the clock. The glasses like when he paints a glass, mm-hmm. or your glass or whatever, um, a, a, a wine glass. It, I think it's almost photographic to me. Yeah, and that's kind of the great thing about, and that's what some people say is that you should learn the rules, then break them and do mm. things your own way. Uh, that's that's one point. school of thought. But to me, maybe it's just a rebellious streak in me. I'm still afraid that the rules might poison the well or erase <laughs> some of the natural creativity. You well, once I mean? you decide which way you're going to fall, you're stuck, aren't you? Because if you decide, okay, I do need to learn the rules, you'll never know what it's like to have not learned the rules. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, Epistemology for beginners. <laughs> yeah, and if, you, if you're the type of person who eschews the rules and never wants to learn because you're afraid it will kind of pollute your creativity. You'll never know what you could have learned. Yeah, and you'll wonder if you've been kind of crippled or put at a disadvantage yeah. to some degree because you don't know the strong fundamentals or whatever. Well, we agree on this, but we, it's with the distraction. You were saying you were thinking about morality. Oh, yeah, about a so-called objective morality that i guess the way the christian apologists would put it is that there's a, an etched in stone or rather etched in the heart of man uh, morality they think some deep like god kind of etches a, a, a set morals and principles in the hearts of men and that's why even the heathens and pagans who existed before jesus number seven right from wrong or something like that you know what i mean insult um, number seven yeah um yeah, but what I think that I'm, I've been wondering lately, but if we look at things like Boko Haram and ISIS and things, and I won't bring up the. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we wonder 
Now, here's my question. Maybe as a psychologist, you can address this. Does the person who commits these atrocious acts, these beheadings and whatnot, or the enslavement of young women, um, do they really believe they're doing it in the name of their religion? And do they really believe that that makes it right and noble? Or does well, some part of them know that said, it's you, wrong? You, you said Craig had to be convincing himself. Right, William Lane Craig, right. Now, if you're going to give it to Craig, surely these people deserve it more than Craig does. Right. They're more ignorant, less, well, they tend to be more, less educated. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of, some of these people are well-educated, don't get me wrong, but they're, they're, they're much more bound into a, a controlling society without freedom of thought, without freedom of religion, uh, where apostasy laws do exist. Um, they, 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 you could regard their, their existence as being in a total institution, which of course is of an interest to me, because total institutions are you know, extreme situations. Um, I don't see why you would ever want to grant Craig the luxury of being able to say that he's convinced himself and not right. granted these people. Yeah, and I, I just thought of another point that kind of strikes a blow to objective morality, and it's the Bible itself. If, if there's an objective morality where we should love everyone like <coughs> our neighbor, and we all know this to be true, it's better to be kind than cruel and all this— then what about the Old Testament atrocities? What about saving the young virgins for yourself? What about dashing the babies against the rocks? Where is the objective morality written in the hearts of men there? I think the excuse could be... um, Well, the Christian apologists say God gets to make the rules and break Yeah, yeah, well, let's just put that aside. Um, I think I was was hearing an interesting comparison between um, Islam and Christianity. Now, Mm -hmm. I innately, I I recognize in myself, perhaps irrationally, the desire to back the underdog a bit, to uh, recognize the friends I've had who I've lived with who are Muslim and as rational as you and me. And I kind of, and I also want to attack my home religion, if you like, Christianity, rather than something that's alien to me, like Islam. So if you just take, take as a record that it's in, almost instinctive in me to be a bit more Affleck and a bit less Harris. I get right? you, I get you. Right? Right. I, I, but I recognise that's, that's the important thing, isn't it? Not, mm-hmm. that, not that you were bigger, but you recognise you were bigger. That's the important thing. Um, so parking that... The um, the issue of uh, sorry, what 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 led me into this line of thinking? I'm I'm. It's oh well, we were talking about oh yes, God, I've got it. And, yes, 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 I've yeah. got it. Is that the, the comparing Islam to Christianity? The argument against me, against my um, if you like underdogism and my what might be wrongly perceived as pro-Islam. The argument against that is that whereas Christianity can be seen to have overwritten itself, like you have the Old Testament, and it gets overwritten by the New Testament. Right. Islam, uh, Christianity, if you like, becomes softer as it develops. Now, the Islamic texts do the opposite. They overwrite the softer stuff with harder stuff as Islam became stronger. So, if you like, it's just by pure happenstance that Islam was written while the 
people who wrote it were getting stronger and therefore more aggressive, if you like, whereas Christianity reflects, by pure happenstance, a softening progression. And that they, that this might be the two differences. If, you were go, if we're going to compare two stupid things, Christianity <laughs> and Islam, right. the Christianity could be seen to as a progressive, progressing softer, whereas Islam could be progressing tougher um, in its doctrine, I mean, in the original texts. Um, and I thought that was interesting. So I, I can see a case for saying the old law was overwritten with the new law, that the arrival of Christ parked all of the Old Testament and stuff. But we are really playing around with bollocks, aren't we? We yeah. are. T- well, the we cafeteria are... stuff just yeah. comes up again because, and on the other hand, there's that bit, you know, the Gospels do contradict each, one another at times. But so, there is the bit about where Jesus says, I've come not to destroy, but to fulfill the law. And yes. he states how important it is. And, you know, yes. every jot and tittle, the, the, yes. the old law has to be followed. And then um, even some cafeteria Christians, oh, I don't like, you know, we don't have to take this part of the Old Testament seriously. Oh, but the anti-gay stuff. Uh, of course we still <laughs> like that, you know. Whatever. Well, it, this is the thing. I mean, it, 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 you know, I think that the uh, English anyway, maybe not so much some of the Scottish, some of the Irish, but English um, Christianity is very much Jesus meek and mild, you know, right. uh, torn, turn the other cheek. I mean, basically, you could sum up m- most, not all, but most of English Christianity with maybe five quotes from Jesus and the nice ones, and then say that's a religion. And it's funny because I remember, I-, I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was Dominic Crossan or who it was exactly, but I was watching some documentary many years ago, and they were talking about, you know, that's one of the prime examples of Christianity as a, uh, or illustrations of Christianity as a religion of peace. The whole thing about turning your other cheek rather than striking your enemy and how that could be seen actually as a sign of rebellion or of not submitting. Instead of turning the cheek in a pacifistic way, turning the cheek like, all right, hit the other one too. I still don't well, give there's up. There's a third yeah. version, which is, which is dropping your trousers and showing your cheek that way. Oh, like, Bra- like Braveheart. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that kind of goes into, you know, I haven't finished reading it, but Reza Aslan's book, uh, Zealot, is all about how, you know, Jesus may actually have been more of this kind of rebellious uh, political activist figure than I most. I think it's, all, it's almost pointless now, though, isn't it? I mean, it's all. We'll never I mean, know for certain. Now. Exactly. I mean, I mean, there's so, it's so contradictory. There's so much mush in there that, frankly, you, like I say, it doesn't really matter what you believe in. You can find it in Christianity. You can find it in the Old Testament, New Testament. You can find it in Islam. You can find it, whatever you want to believe, it's fine. Well, you can rationalize it with the book. Just choose your book. Well, it's fine. You know, one thing I still wrestle with uh not that it matters it's just kind of like a, a interesting little theological exercise for myself is i can remember even as a kid when i first heard the bit where jesus says uh you know I- i've come to to bring a sword and talk about yes. dividing yes. you know Divide. family and this yes. and that and to me, that's from the first time I heard it, it sounded figurative. Like he's saying what he's saying is so radical that it's going to divide people. And here I'm almost giving, uh, kind of, you know, I'm providing the opposition with excuses or rationalizations. Sure, sure. But, but you then are, the stuff about selling the cloak to get a sword, you're like, sure. what is but, that? But, you can't but really. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is that famous story, isn't it? I, you know, I, 
I don't understand why people want to play around Christianity. I like it in the original King James. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that story, that, you know, that, that someone really said that, didn't they? I don't forget who it was. I, I don't, don't mess around with Christianity. The original King James is good enough for me, as if the original King James wasn't 1,500 years after. <laughs> <laughs> after copies of copies exactly. have been made. And it seems to me that, you know, that if, if, if for you to try and interpret these passages is mm-hmm. fruitless it's a, it's a translation of a translation of a translation of a, of a story that was a fable before it was a fable and probably even then is really an appeal to something much older document and an attempt to uh, to um make christ fit into a, an older um an older set of principles and beliefs and it seems to me beyond pointless now to to to, to because like i say you know I've, what i've learned the last few years if anything Probably not very much, maybe. But what I have learned is that it's it, it's what we read in the King James, for example, is mm-hmm. so removed, and it's cult- so culturally, but the context is gone. We can't, like I said, you know, I'd love to go back, like you would, and and the time machine and see what happens. But it's it's it seems it's almost like it's almost like we found some gold tablets and the squiggles on it and made up what it meant. Yeah, and it's a good point because uh, I think. People who are inclined to do so, like myself, we might still be, you know, we have a passion for wrestling with this stuff, but maybe you have to come to some kind of grips that you're most likely not going to solve much unless there's some new archaeological discoveries that suddenly shine a light on things or something like that. Because you're right, we're dealing with copies of copies and uh, translations of translations. Yeah. And I, I have to rely on people like Price and people who actually understood the, who, to a degree can understand the original language, but not the culture. They can understand the language maybe, and they've done a great job, and I really admire what they've done. I wish I could do it. If, they could, if I could read Greek, it would be great. If I could read any of those old languages, it would be great. But even if I could, I cannot put it into a cultural context. I do not know what it was like to live and breathe um, a Roman invasion or whatever. That's right. I mean, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and yeah. uh, the first Christians were essentially Jews. It was a Jewish movement. But so, by the time the Gospels were written, these were probably fairly well-educated Hellenistic people writing in so, Greek, maybe Hellenistic Jews. I think it's thought that Luke might have been a Gentile or whatever. But yeah, if, uh, you want to get al- if you want to get along, though, you've got to talk Roman. I don't mean Latin. I mean talk Roman. That, there's in, a way they'll understand it. Well, that fit in. Which is what they think is going on, I think, really with the Gospel of Luke. Sure, you don't have to chop bits off your knob. No, you don't have to do yeah. that. It's fine. Forget all the dietary laws. And oh, no, 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 no. That, none of that's a problem. And in fact, you pay your taxes because give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It all fits yeah. in with your, with your society, no problem at all. No worries. Don't rock the boat. Yep. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I think that you call it Roman Catholicism. I think for a reason. It's, you know, the, all of our Christianity that we have now, almost all of it, to be fair, there are exceptions, but almost all of it is translated through development of the Catholic Church, which itself was a Romanization of a very obscure cult, which happened mm-hmm. to take off in certain quarters amongst certain... I mean, in, we, this is so convoluted, Phil. Yeah, I mean... Uh obviously the Roman Emperor Constantine, and then there's all this argu- there's all these arguments over, did he actually convert to Christianity? He seemed to employ all this symbolism that celebrated uh, 
you know, the Roman sun god and things like that. And then not to get too Dan Brown, because one thing I hate about Dan Brown is the way he just kind of... Lights? Yeah. yeah. That, well, I had, to, I had to stop myself from swearing. I was going to use some real strong vulgarity about the way he basically deflowers history or, or the way he kind of... Sure. You know, but he has it, inspired some thought, at least. But yeah, yeah, it is trash. It is Pulp Fiction. Because he has yeah. the stuff about, to hit, you know, in his version, the Council of Nicaea is where the Bible oh, is assembled. But really, it's afterwards with Eusebius sure. and Constantine orders up some, you know, unified Bibles or whatever. And I think sure. the Council of Nicaea was more about setting a date for Easter, for Easter. And That's correct, the nature yeah. of the divinity of Jesus and this and that. Yes. And uh, But still, like to go to your point, it shows how man-made it really all is. Absolutely. I, it, it, it seems to me, I mean, I'm not, I'm, don't get me wrong, it is interesting. And I, and I, um, I listen, to, listen to Robert Price whenever he's on anything. Uh, mythicism. <laughs> yeah, I really, yeah, I'm really interested in it. And Carrier, and yeah. um, who wrote Nailed? Was it David... Um, nailed ten myth, ten, ten reasons why Christ probably never existed at all. Um, they, they, um, it wasn't David Carrier, Silverman, was it? I forget. Silverman, I think. I, I know I'm familiar. I haven't read Nailed, but I know the title because I just saw it mentioned in a debate I was watching. If only we had a computer in front of us. If only. Ah, nailed ten Christian myths that showed Jesus never existed by David Fitzgerald. Now I'm trying to think who the heck David Fitzgerald is. I think he's an atheist. He, <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. William Lane Craig's pen na- new pen name. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was, I because it was this sort of work that that started to push me towards mythicism. From, I mean, absolute mythicism, as opposed to my, there may have been a guy that wandered around the desert, because it was this whole idea that Paul doesn't actually, in his writing, doesn't actually suggest the guy, a guy, actually existed. It's more of a, a culty kind of, it all happened in heaven kind of thing. Yeah, like the the uh, mythicist, and that's funny because one of your fellow uh, countrymen, I haven't done that many interviews, uh, but one of the interviews I did was with, I might mention this to you, an English playwright named Alexander Nye who did what he billed as oh, the, yes. the first atheist play about Jesus, and it was heavily inspired and incorporates um, mythicist uh, ideas about this figure known as the Christ Angel and all these different things about how it was all this kind of symbolic, all this kind of theater that took place in the ether or whatever. Mm. Uh, very strange. And no, it's fine. Uh, you're probably familiar. You seem very well versed on this stuff. So, but uh, Bart er- Ehrman or Ehrman. I love Bart Ehrman. Yeah. And no, he was the first, I learned from him and this blew my mind the first time. Speaking of copies of copies, he always talks about that. How sure. one of the most pivotal stories of the new testament the story of the woman taken into adultery or whatever it is about when yes. jesus says first stone yeah cast uh, let him who be without sin cast the first stone or whatever yes that's one of the quotes that that english christianity would use and that's supposedly according to airman uh an interpolation meeting a, a later add-on and supposedly that doesn't appear in the regular gospel and some scribe added that in later. And it's one of the most pivotal stories in Christianity. And I even heard 
recently it was a uh, it might have been on real time with Bill Maher and not so recently could have been like half a year ago or something I think it might have been Ralph Reed or some right wing Christian politician was on and Bill Maher was trying to nail him down on uh, no pun intended on okay. the subject of uh, adultery and how the Old Testament says you know people should be killed for adultery and I think Ralph Reed said but Jesus saves the adulteress and says, you know, uh, let him who be without sin cast the first stone. And I'm thinking to myself, according to Bart Ehrman, this story is a complete interpolation and not sure. even an invention of, and not even part of the original gospel story. Well, I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's crazy. It's hard. To, it's a strange pill to swallow even for a former Christian. Well, this is, this is that's, that's a big one, isn't it? I yeah, mean, absolutely. Because, that's, that's, that's like... Turn the other cheek and first stone are are, cli- are the cliches of of you know how Christian are you kind of thing. What what kind of Christian would that make you? Kind of, that kind of whole terminology, you know, how Christian of you? That mm-hmm. sort of stuff all turns on this whole thing about meek and mild, whatever the children, whatever that one is. Uh, first stone, uh, turn the other cheek, bang. That's it. That's your modern English Christianity in a nutshell. And a big tenet of that has just been taken away. You destroyed my faith, Phil. I'm so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to make you an atheist again. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is funny trying to figure out was there a historical Jesus or not. One thing I still kind of not cling to like I want to be true, but maybe seems like a grain of evidence, is that supposedly these certain members of the early church, like Peter and James, the the supposed brother of Jesus, that there, there were some figures in the early church who supposedly actually knew. Jesus, but who even knows if this is correct? But if if you sure. think about it, the champion of Christianity of our, is the early Christian movement is really Paul, absolutely, and uh, colossal apostle. And, and Paul, that's right. And Paul, as we were saying earlier, the Paul Pauline letters and the epistles were written before the Gospels. So yeah. if this is his baby, and the Gospels come afterwards, it's like who the hell knows what's true and what isn't? Yeah, and I think um, if if well, let's just say you had um, some kind of idea of something that happened in the heavens, um, and that was the cult that was being followed in Rome. Isn't it natural that you might try and atta- attribute that to humans who really walked the earth? Isn't that kind of predictable? And who knows? Like, I-, I had one pet theory. I don't even know if it's true. Uh, there's another podcaster I'm really good friends with named uh, Chris Weber. He oh, yeah. He hosted the podcast, uh, C-Web Sunday School, and I've talked about it. Sure, but not uh, anymore. Now he does uh, Paranormal Skeptic Academy, and I actually interviewed him about that probably a few episodes back. But we've talked about whether or not Jesus may have been some kind of composite figure, that there, may, there was a lot of people crucified by the Romans. Yeah. And a, lot yeah. Of, a number of them could have been would-be messiahs. Did this inspire some kind of myth or belief? I don't know. You know who knows? Well, exactly. And if you were going to try and attribute some real human to the story that you've already got, and there happened to be some, or three people, shall we say, one who was a carpenter, one who wandered around the desert, you know, apparently healing people, another, why wouldn't you just drag them in? Just like you drag Christmas in to, you know, the pagan rituals. I mean, the Christianity is, is probably the most parasitic religion there is. 
Yeah, and well, that that is very true, and it almost reminds me of the Borg from Star Trek. Yes, absolutely. And in <laughs> England, I mean, it's futile. Yeah, you might not have this so much in America because you haven't got a history. I mean, I mean, because you've got quite a short history. Um, but you know, uh, you've got to look at where I am right now. You know, um, in a very ancient landscape, mm-hmm. and uh, on the tops of hills there are churches. Well, those churches aren't the tops of those hills by coincidence. They're planted on top of pagan places. Right. And it's over and over again. You find a church in the middle of, a, of, a, of an ancient stone circle, in the middle of, of ancient banks that are sometimes thousands and thousands of years old. You know, they're, they're, geographically, physically, they're parasitic. Conceptually, they're parasitically, pa- parasitic. Um, in terms of philosophy, they're parasitic. It, 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 you know, I've I got to say, it's one of the religions that annoys me most just because it is crushed so much underfoot and this is maybe maybe uh, christianity didn't but rome did and this is something that uh now it's kind of my turn to embrace the underdog and this shows (laughs) maybe a bit of hypocrisy on my part because you know if you're going to kind of ridicule or be critical of the supernatural claims of a religion maybe you should do it across the board but i still really heavily romantic like i spoke about my early love of mythology and and whatnot i still really romanticize the pagan religions and um Oh, the loss we've had, the loss that Catholicism stamped out worldwide as well. It's not even over here, but it's South America. It's um, across Europe. It's, it, it stamps out these... Yeah, I have the warm and fuzzies about these old beliefs as well, and I want to see them, and I want to enjoy them and as, as, a, as a, a psychologist to understand them and as a culture, someone who's interested in culture to get to grips with these varying beliefs and compare them, and they've just been stamped out, and it's... it's uh, Offensive, it's sad in a way. Yeah, and you guys uh, have some of the best ones. Uh, well, I, I think the theory is a lot of gods in, in different cultures that have been Christianized ended up becoming like diminutive. They ended up becoming house spirits, brownies, and sprites, and sure. things like that. Um, well, you know, there's um in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. There, I don't know. Do you know? I don't know if you know much about bog bodies. Oh yeah, the, the, there's about three hundred bog the bodies. Tannin, the, uh, the tannin in the bogs turns sure. them into these leathery corpses. Sure, and, and even often triple killed, overkilled. Right, that wasn't like bludgeoning. Uh, no, 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 no. Triple killed and buried in a bog. It does look very ritual, uh, very ritual. And um, amongst in the same sort of places in bogs are. are old sword, Iron Age swords and whatever, and Bronze Age implements for the Bronze Age earlier ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and in uh, one place, they found this huge urn full of butter buried in the bog. And uh, in, it was in, in Ireland. And they said that on this, I, I can only take their word for it because it was a pretty poor program. But the program recorded that um, even in living memory, people used to take lumps of butter and put it in the bog. So you've got a tradition there that's 6,000 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm tripping over my tongue, so let's just say tribute. <laughs> tribute yeah. to the gods yeah. or the spirits. Yeah, I think I remember the, the bodies, they'll have a, a noose, but it yes. also looks like they may have been clubbed, uh, throat slit or something like that. Yes. Yeah, but you're right. Like ceremonially killed in a, a variety. Uh, yeah, as you say, triple killed. Um, 
I think, and yeah, even things like uh, obviously there's pagan roots to Christmas and Easter. Sure. Um, and, and Christmas, I mean, you not only there's some uh, Roman influence, things like Saturnalia and stuff like that, and then on top of it, you have the uh, the Nordic influences too, with the evergreens and the things like that, and oh, uh, Santa the Claus is part Odin. Oh, and the the Green Man, and then Easter. I believe is uh, supposedly uh, at least partly inspired by the celebrations of a pagan fertility goddess. Sure. And, and you have the uh, the hares and the eggs. And well, you can I, see this yeah. as, a, as, a, as a drinker in this country. You see this all the time. There's a lot of pubs called the Green Man. That's a lot of pubs called the Wheat Chief. Stuff. Sure. A lot of pubs called the Wheat Chief. Everyone's forgotten what all this comes from. Everyone's forgotten what what the basis of that of the words even, and this is only a few hundred years, let alone a couple of thousand. And everyone's forgotten, and and even two hundred years ago, the culture was so alien to us now. It's quite hard for us to slide in and think we understand these people just by reading them. Um, you know, not everyone was as, elo- as eloquent as, as the founding fathers in America. Um, and you know, when you think to tie this back into what we've just been saying, you try yes, these, these lost understandings, which are actually not that not that far removed from us now in this country. Like I say, we still drink in pubs called the Green Man, um, and and yet that's the same language, it's the same basic culture, it's you know this, a lot of things are similar, and yet we struggle to understand the people of a few hundred years ago. What chance have we got to really understand? Two thousand years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so when when an apologist says what it really means is this, right? The only words that come should come to mind are the word bollocks. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing to say. It's you know you're making it up as you go along, mate, and you're trying to make up what you believe or what you what your own maybe part instinctive morality and partly painted on by society. You're just going back and trying to find something in, even though it's been translated several times, which you can attach somehow to what you're trying to say. So whenever they go to a Bible quote, the only response is bollocks. Yeah, and it's funny because you look at things like scholars are still kind of wrestling with how much trust should we place in Herodotus or like these early historians and then something that may have been written as figurative uh, religious literature trying mm. to look at that as if it's journalistic accuracy. But uh, it's because wasn't it uh, the modern Wiccan movement? I, I, was that founded in England? <laughs> I think but a lot of it was. And of course, it's like Druidism. It's got very little to do with, I mean, Druidism got nothing at all to do with Druids. Yeah, that's, uh, th- they're still a, a, a big mystery, aren't they? Just who the Druids actually were and what they did. I think, our only, uh, uh, we don't think they wrote anything down. The only access we'd have to Druids is pretty much Julius Caesar and maybe one or two other, yeah, one uh, or two yeah. other Roman writers. So you're asking, you're asking, basically, you're asking a bunch, let's say, a bunch of Americans who, well, English, to be honest, probably, with a few guns who want a bit of land and blast away a load of Indians and get shot at them and round them up and infect them with smallpox. And then you ask them what those Indians believe. Their cultures like or whatever. Yeah, of all people, those are the last people, yeah, who, and they and they don't care either. I don't know if it was it Caesar who wrote about uh, 
Well, now, now we famously have the Burning Man, but there's supposed to be the the ritual of the Wicker Man where they. So put you got, all you the take blood. us back to that film over and over. You got to take us back there, haven't you? The oh, the Burning, the Burning Man. Sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to do that. Yeah, this uh, is my mind, not yours, Phil. <laughs> no, it's funny, is that because they're talking about having sympathy, and it's kind of an underdog thing for like pagan religions and traditions. But if let's say if Druidism did survive, and let's say they actually did as suggested, uh, practice human sacrifice, we'd probably be wagging our fingers at the Druids like we wag them at the Christians. Sure. Well, but why, why, <laughs> I, don't see why we would, I don't see why we would con- contest. I mean, like sometimes with arguments, it seems to me that you have to go with the, with the if you've got a choice between yes or no, you, you go with what you've got, don't you? And mm-hmm. it seems to me we've got bog bodies. Someone triple, was being killed. <laughs> triple death. And we've got Julius Caesar saying these people killed people. Right. Now, maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't. But um, it's just like, let's just say on the balance of probabilities, they, I guess it would not be surprising that, that, that to find that, that these, this religion, for want of a better word, that these people had involved human sacrifice. Why not? Since uh, it, it was fairly common all over the globe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, From the, the Americas the, to uh, yes, the Mideast. Absolutely. You know? The bog bodies are a lot older than the society that uh, Julius Caesar came upon. And, you know, and the Celtic invasion came after the bog bodies. So Rome, so Rome was, was, was invading a pre-invaded society. So who knows? Uh, but, Steve, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your petition and where people can go to sign it? Sure. Well, there is a petition out there uh, in order to put pressure on the British legal system to... Uh, not necessarily solve my case, but solve the problem with the precedent to stop uh, us being in a position where an uh, Islamic man might be sent to a synagogue or a Catholic might be sent to a mosque or I might be sent to a Catholic church. That We need to stop this now when it's first happened. There's a petition, and the best way to get to it is go to the Skeptical Facebook page where the first item is a link that sends you to the petition. Because Petition links are, are painful. Um, so that's the best way to get there. You can always hear me on Skepticule, uh, which is as it sounds, Skeptic U-L-E. Um, and I tend to just record a piece for Skepticule and, and give it to the guys and they reply, basically. And unfortunately, I'm usually not there to get into an argument about it, which I quite like. <laughs> so I have, that's, that's the relationship I've got with Skepticule, which is, which is one I enjoy, which is just I send something in. And I don't have to do what you have to do, Phil, and edit things. Uh, <laughs> Apart from harrowing. myself. I edit myself down to... Uh, I try to get something down to a five-minute argument. Bang. And I'm not sure how successful I am, but you, can, you probably can tell from our rambling conversation that I tend to think about all sorts of things. Now, I'm thinking, I don't know if I'll include all the history stuff because you come off as uh, much smarter than me on the, the history so <laughs> you edit it well, I'm sure you'll make it sound I'll, I'll edit it now. in a way where I sound very erudite. Yeah. I'll, I'll and read, what you could uh, do is get my he- get my hesitations and just re- put them on repeat after everything you say so I sound like a git. It's like that uh, video of Dawkins on YouTube where they <laughs> ask him for an example about uh, mutation and it, uh, for, like, for like 20 minutes. No, I was thinking about the one where he said, oh, we're all, we're all from aliens, we've all come from Comet, that cut oh, up Yeah, I think that was... Uh, Ben, uh, not Ben, uh, what's that guy's name? Yeah, I don't know if it's Ben Stein. No, what? Uh, ben Stein. Ben, ben Stein. Ben Stein, that's it. And he did that horrible, awful movie, 
called Expelled, yes. which takes a very sympathetic look to creationism. Fascinating. And they did a very kind of uh, selective uh, hack job on Dawkins in that one. Um, absolutely awful. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're starting to short out a little, I think, so I'll, I'll let you go. I can't hear you that well. Oh, okay. For, oh, okay. there you are. Oh, are there? Yeah, you start to kind of crackle a okay. bit. Um, well, yeah. It's been a fasc- fascinating. We've been talking before. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It has been, and it, it just flew by. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be what I'm guessing. So you, after, you do what you want, Phil, with it. As I long guess, as you don't. Uh, after all the editing's done, it'll probably be at least three and a half hours. I might be able to cull out. Uh, <laughs> if it uh, wasn't so late, I could carry on talking about this stuff. Very, you and I clearly think about the same sort of things. Absolutely. And I, I think it would be great if at some point we should talk about um, – history and ancient religion again that'd be kind of like and a we'll, breath of fresh we'll be air disciplined. we'll be disciplined won't we phil we'll we'll say we'll talk about this and we won't talk about hijacked aircraft and we won't talk about this and we won't talk about that we'll be very strict disciplined and we'll talk about what we said we would talk about that'd be excellent because at some point I, i've told a couple of people at some point i plan to do a weekly podcast on mythology where i just look at a different myth or folk tale every episode so i really love this stuff it'd be great sometime we talked about some of the early uh, folk traditions and religious beliefs of pre-Christian uh, Britain and things like that. I can do some stuff there. I, I mean, uh, uh, what happened when I stopped being a truck driver and, and started educating myself? I planned to go to university to study archaeology, mm-hmm. and I did. I studied archaeology for a year at university, um, but it wasn't working for me. It wasn't. It wasn't stretching me. It wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. It was, it was probably a bad decision. Um, but it was just something that drove me. I think it, it's this search for authenticity, this search for the underlying reality, search for where we come from. It was a kind of drive in me. And that's why I went to archaeology, because that's the ultimate search for wh- where we come from in this kind of global we. Um, and then, of course why wouldn't I transfer to psychology? Because isn't that where we come from? You go from study, studying the rocks and the rubble to studying what makes a person The a rocks person. and rubble in people's heads. In yeah. people's <laughs> heads, that's right. But no, I think it, we, it's about the hypocrisy of liking ancient myths. I think it has to do with the fact that they're not practiced anymore and that we can enjoy them Absolutely. as yeah. quaint symbol, symbolism from a distance. Yeah. When you yeah. still have people trying to convince you that God flooding the world actually happened and things like yes. that. That's when it gets ugly. Okay, so I want to thank you again, Steve, for coming on and not only sharing your personal story about this court case and the repercussions it could have at large uh, regarding uh, freedom of religion in uh, Britain, uh, but I also want to thank you just for a great stimulating conversation on a number of topics, and you've been an excellent guest, and uh, I hope you had a good time too, and I'm hoping to have you back again. Thank you, Phil. It's been great. I've really enjoyed chatting, it's, but it's just been like two guys chatting in front of the fire, which suits me fine. Absolutely. And um, we've been talking a lot off the record, so we've said goodbye a few times. So now, <laughs> so now, now we're just recording the formal goodbye. This so, is the formal goodbye. So, so, thank you, Phil. It's been, it's, I've really enjoyed talking. Me too. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to this special episode of The Week in Doubt. 
If you enjoyed it, please consider donating to the show's upkeep by using the PayPal widget at palbertelli, P-A-L-B-E-R-T-E-L-L-I dot podbean dot com. The PayPal widget should be near the bottom of the page. Why is it hidden at the bottom? I don't know. And who knows if I'm able to monetize the show enough. Maybe I can stop swinging a hammer and make this my day job. Thanks again, and don't forget to sign Steve's petition. Thank you.